Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle the people that make it and occasionally ourselves i'm camille foster i have declared myself this evening the alan iverson of this podcast except i do a lot of winning it's sort of like a combination of alan iverson michael jordan kobe bryant all wrapped up into one extraordinary package and being humble is overrated profoundly overrated so you um, and, don't you know, practice and you gamble a lot and i win <laughs> that's what's important uh, i'm talking to the the robert ori of this podcast matt welch it's not silent he's it's got just rings not... he's getting rings you, 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 you but you're still a role player stay in your you lane exhale it's, my it's ori okay yeah. Ori. See, how I'm going to be the franchise player, you over here talking to me about pronunciations. <laughs> and <laughs> Michael Moynihan, oh, also man. in the building. Yes. What what player are you? I'm the red Arback of this. Yeah. Mitch Richmond. <laughs> the red fox. That? Mitch Richmond. Yeah, I'm the red fox of, of yeah. this. We got, guess, Jason, you know, they don't all Jason play Stanton. basketball, he Moynihan, he go, he go, just yeah, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Unbelievable. Such racism, and we do, just got started. The thing about this show is that when we have a guest on, and then there's this amazingly horrible lead-in, I always see them, particularly when it's on Skype. Yeah, when we have in the TV studio, they're in trapped. A room. They're trapped in the studio. I see them on Skype, and I see them like unplugging the router and being like, "I don't know, man. Just yeah. the connection was the really connection shitty. isn't working, and they they would leave. But well, we do have a guest. We do have a guest, and he wouldn't leave because yes. I know him." personally and i would take offense if he left and also yeah. he knew what he was getting into he knows yeah. what's going down does he know about you like he knows like what he's getting into the fact that you are dynamic yeah dynamic. that's why i'm here yes <laughs> yeah 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 i can talk minor secondary role players for the houston rockets all yeah. night i like long. it see well, that's what i'm talking of about minor secondary role players i mean in outside of the sports analogies you're sort of the armstrong the williams of this room <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's... well you know i should say we're, we're talking to and yes. about jason stanley who's a philosophy professor at yale he's also the author of how fascism works the the subtitle of that book is the politics of us and them this has been described as a book that is absolutely urgent for people to read during the trump era which maybe is coming to an end I think right it's now. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to talk to Jason about this. Among among other things, we there, there are plenty of things that are going on in the world. A bit of housekeeping very quickly. One, I don't think we have wide release the Glenn Greenwald dispatch. We, 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 we have not. No. Okay, so no, we're going we to do that essentially the day after you hear this. That yes. will be available yeah. if you're listening on the first day, like most of you sensible, sane people are. Um, and the second thing is I got into some weird dispute on the interwebs with a previous guest on the podcast which actually turned uncomfortably awkward to the point where it ends with ken white another former guest on the podcast pope hat blocking me on twitter and all sorts of other nothing like, good happens calamitous on twitter. stupidness and i here's the thing we're gonna release a recording with radley balco and us that we did in the summer it's a bit dated but there's something there. It's a little shorter than our usual one because it has an 
and this is a dangerous way to characterize it, but I don't mind because I think it's accurate, an abrupt ending. So you'll get that, and there'll be some context in the front of it, but I've told you that it's coming, and now you'll understand why your stream is filled with things that were recorded a little bit of time ago, but are still interesting and worth your time, I think. So there. So there. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything else about... No, I came to that because uh, I was tagged in that Twitter exchange, and yeah. I don't fight on Twitter anymore. Uh-huh. I haven't I done wasn't, this. I wasn't and, fighting. No, no, I know, but I don't even get into you know negative interactions. I mean... If our guest Jason Stanley said, you know, the definition of fascism is Michael Moynihan, I'd be like, it's very nice to talk to you, Jason. I'll give you a call. I just don't, I don't do it anymore. And I came to that. I was, uh, I was, uh, cause you know, my new life now, cause I'm no longer uh, living full time in the city at the moment. Mm. And the reason is I just got an alert on Citizen that 300 feet away, there was a knife incident. Huh. So that's apparently right outside the window. There's a knife incident Wait, happening. On, that could mean on a lot Duchebro of things. Island? Uh, on, on, no, here okay. on, on Canal Street. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not, not, where, <laughs> not where I actually live. That yeah. doesn't happen. That means, you, that means civilization has returned. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's exactly. Na- nature God. is yeah. healing. Yes, yeah, so New York is no longer over. <sighs> it's back, baby. <laughs> Um, so I, I came in from like raking the lawn and happening. I saw this blow yeah. up and I'm like, oh my God, all these people can go fuck themselves, including the real. <laughs> all, I hate all of you. Especially, you know? especially me. Yeah. And it's, and it's the, it is the apocryphal uh, uh, Kissinger quote about the Iran-Iraq war. It's too bad they both, and in this case, all can't lose. Let me start off out of the gate here because maybe you can help me adjudicate something. This is a bit oh, of a personal, no. personal struggle. I didn't oh, clear this no. with anyone ahead of time, but oh, Jason, what, what are your thoughts on cancel culture? Is it a thing? Wow, really? Going right to uh, that. Uh, I, absolutely, it's a thing. Okay. Uh, if you look at, I mean, and I got myself in trouble early on in free speech debates by not admitting up front that it's a thing. Uh, it's a thing on both the right and the left. I mean, look at campus reform, look at Breitbart. I mean, they've gone after me. They try to fire professors right and left. Uh, they can't get tenured professors and tenure track professors, so they go after lecturers. If you look at campus reform, if you look at Turning Point USA, which has, uh, which has, uh, which had the professor watch list, which introduces themselves with the professor watch list. And there are corresponding things on the left too. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's generally, that's why I do have come around to supporting fire. Um, you know, uh, we have to stop, uh, threatening people's jobs for their speech. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I think, I think what happens with council culture as so much, uh, in these discussions is that everyone focuses on the threat facing them. Like I focus on campus reform in Breitbart mm-hmm. and other people focus on getting attacked for their views on race or their views on gender or, uh, or something like this. Yeah. You talk about David Horowitz's, um, yeah, you know, book exactly. of professors exactly. and, and that stuff. And, and for those of you who, who don't know, and as uh, Jason said, you tend to go after the ones who go after you. If you didn't already right. realize that uh, Jason Stanley is a member of the Communist Party, he is uh, an apparatchik. Er, when Earl Browder died, Jason took over. So he's a man. You're a man of the left. And, um, you know, you talk about this uh, quite a bit. But one of the things when I was reading the book and I was like, huh, I wonder if Jason supports the guys over at FIRE because they make a yeoman's effort to take on cases from all sides Mm -hmm. and they've defended Palestinian groups who were, you know, trying to, people trying to run them off campus, you know, professors, uh, the guy in Chicago, Stephen, 
Salty. I can never Salida. pronounce it. Salida. Salida, yeah. Who, 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 just, who just sold his house, sold his house in Florida to take a job at University of Illinois Urbana, uh, got the tenured offer, moved with his family, moved in. It's pro forma, the final move. The board approves you. Bought a house in Urbana, of all places. Mm-hmm. And then at the last moment, because of tweets about Palestine, uh, tweets, um, they, uh, they did not approve his hiring, after, which is like completely unheard of. In other words, they removed his tenure. He's a bus driver now. Wow. Um, Holy yeah. shit. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and by the way, I, uh, on, on the Sirius XM, when I was doing the show there, I uh, defended him and had the guy on who was one of the lawyers, uh, the ACLU lo- lawyers from Skokie. And he's like kind of Zionist guy and was like attacking him. And he's like, no, but this is completely insane that people want to want to uh, take away his livelihood. And that actually happened. And so, well, I think there is a balance problem that it's more often uh, coming from the left these days. But there is a lot that does come from people that are, I guess you could you could say are on the right. Now, I want to do the whole cancel culture conversation later or at least you, you people it. have ha- heard you us say this it. It, i'm only setting the context up for a question that i want to put to the group all right yes because while i know yeah. that there is this coup d'etat taking place in the country etc oh, etc no. et and people at the pentagon are being disappeared and black bag operations are taking place as the trump administration <laughs> prepares the ground to void the results of the election and listeners take power for just to remind you, Camille is the worst, the worst. I'm just saying individual that all those things human are, being in the listen, history of sarcasm. Go those, on. So those, I'm just saying, it may be the blackest of swans, but still, it is a swan, okay? <laughs> and it could happen. So I'm just saying, I have something that's heavy on my heart. Because in the midst of this dispute that I'm not going to get into at all, it was suggested that I was a hypocrite because some Weeks or months back, I had some stupid dispute with one Taylor Lorenz at the New York Times Mm -hmm. who had gone after some people publicly suggesting that they were racist and that they were platforming white nationalists and all kinds of other monstrous charges and misrepresenting, so far as I'm concerned, since I was present in the room, what took place in those conversations. And I challenged her on this on Twitter, on social media. And very quickly, Taylor blocks me. Granted, like getting blocked on Twitter is just something that happens. This isn't a big deal. I block a lot of people, Carmela. Right. So blocking blocking is fine, right? Oh my God, come on. Blocking is generally fine. Here's the challenge that the New York Times does in fact have specific editorial standards and those standards include the conduct of their journalists on social media and to the extent oh God, you have these awful. published I can never work for the new york times i'm just saying to the extent you have these published <laughs> standards and those standards suggest that people who work for us who are engaging with the readership of our publication shouldn't be blocking people it actually explicitly says if i'm not mistaken don't be disrespectful it says don't engage And if you do engage, do so in a respectful way. I want you to tell me if I'm being hypocritical here because I replied to Taylor and I provided this context and I did at the New York Times. And my goal here was to say what I what I'm pretty sure I suggested in the thread that there's a standard here. And if the standard doesn't matter, then they should change it. Now, again, 
if I'm complaining about a journalist in their capacity as a journalist, and I'm complaining based on the standard of the outlet that you work for, am I engaging in cancel culture by bringing the issue up? By adding their boss? Flagging the publication in the tweet. Stop sniffing. Like, I didn't at your boss. I didn't email your <laughs> boss and say, fire this person. Like, that seems totally in bounds. But tell me, does everyone disagree with that? I'm pretty libertarian on these things. I think that, that uh, people should have the freedom to have a place where they, I mean, they can behave badly. They can behave disrespectfully. For the New York Times to require that of their journalists and their in their private uh, social media use. Um, I mean, we don't have that for university academics. Uh -huh. But if the standard exists, and, and I might agree with you about changing the standard. In this particular case, the standard exists, right? If the mm. standard exists, am I out of line to say to the person who represents this organization and to the organization itself, like, do your Did this guidelines come up matter? again recently? Yeah, because Ken White, said oh, wow. in response to some, I, I, I was confused about something and he said, my managing partner isn't here for you to complain to. Oh, and later in a different exchange, he explained that this was in reference to my tagging Taylor in this tweet thread. Now, well, which is again, for me, doesn't feel like hypocrisy given both the nature of our interaction, the nature of the charges that she'd leveled and the fact that I'm not appealing to her saying, please unblind me. I'm appealing to the standards. What did she charge you with that merited this response? The dispute was about her characterization of a conversation that took place on Clubhouse. People were being called racist. They were being criticized for platforming racists. And I disputed the nature of her allegations and suggested that she had a journalistic duty to get stuff like this right. I, I don't like like that person is a racist. That's a difficult claim claim to uh, substantiate. But claims like that claim is racist. It's really hard to have a conversation without saying things like that claim is racist or that claim isn't racist. And sure. people should have the freedom to be mistaken about those claims. Yeah. You know, you and I can talk and I can say, no, that seems to me to be a racist claim. And you can like say, no, it isn't for these reasons. And I can say, OK, I was wrong. It's just a conversation. People get overhyped, especially if you think that there's a lot of racism, as someone like me does. It's not like you're saying something wildly out of the ordinary happened. Yeah. And I mean, look, the specific allegations may or may not be right. I may not be right here. But the question I'm, I'm most interested in here, and everyone is permitted to weigh in, is whether or not my actions are or were hypocritical. By putting the New York Times uh -huh. in it as well. Yeah. Were you trying to like suss her out? Yeah. I don't think that you're reporting uh, her to her boss in that uh, instance. Well, it's also, it's also I mean, a public forum. I mean, if it was, if you guys were having a private email exchange and you all of a sudden put Dean Baquet on the chain, that'd be different. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, it's public. I, I didn't email Dean. And, yeah, and to be way, clear. Or, or anyone else. To be clear, we're now on minute like 15 of you talking about a fucking <laughs> it, Twitter it, beef. It won't, it won't come across the, like the, that. The, from two months editing. ago. From it's two months ago. Edit, editing. It won't come across uh, that way. So like there's a very online question that we should all think about with our lives in general. But no, you're talking about the standards of a news organization. Yeah. Now, it, you could have been here 10 years ago saying to Dave Weigel when it was uh, disclosed on journal list that he had said some untoward 
things about, or other people had, like Spencer Ackerman had said untoward things about conservatives in a uh, a private email list. And you could have been working for Andrew Breitbart, who was still alive back then, um, and published that and said, this is against the standards of the Washington Post, which it was at the time. And they, in fact, fired Dave Weigel at the time for that. But those standards were stupid. So, like, using stupid standards to get someone, um, you know, professionally hurt um, in the middle of a dumb Twitter beef, I think, is not cool. Um, But I don't think that's what you were doing. I think what you were doing was saying, like, you have a standard that actually kind of makes some amount of sense. You should treat people with general respect and don't go out there leading with your conclusion about a group of people that is really negative. And and you made a reference to this before we started. Uh, You said Yankee Hotel Fox Drive. Dave Weigel is the Wilco of journalism because he was fired from the Washington Post and then rehired by the Washington Post. By the same Washington Post. (laughs) And if you know anything about that record, it was, uh, you know... Dropped from <laughs> one label on, that was owned by the same company and picked up by another one. So, but was it as good? Uh, yes, it was. It was a good record. So, no, I mean, um, Weigel. Uh, uh, yeah, oh yeah. Well, yeah. that's yeah, yeah. Well, yes. I, I have indulged in my prerogative here, and probably to my detriment. But you know, whatever. <laughs> maybe maybe we could talk about the coup d'état now. The coup. The coup. Is everybody fine with that? We transition to talking about matters of the world. Sure. Okay. Great. So the president of the United States still seems to have lost the election. We are in week <laughs> what? Is this a week? I think time just, just passes not, differently in the COVID era. No, it's not because because he was it was called on Saturday. Okay. So it's been so it was called on Saturday, but it's but the election was last Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So it's been yeah. it's been over a week since yeah. the election sort of that process. Yes. Whatever. It doesn't matter. We've had results since Saturday. The president of the United States he has continued to assail all of us with allegations of fraud and general badness on the part of Democrats and other dark forces. Get see what I did there. It could mean a lot of different things Um, who have apparently stolen the election away from this president. Now the president has not done much in the way of providing evidence for these claims, as most of you know, but it is the case that lots of Americans are very animated by what the president has said and many other Americans are very concerned that he is doing grave damage to the institutions and the credibility of the United States and our electoral process. And there's very real questions about whether or not he will actually ever recognize Joe Biden as the victor and whether or not he'll ever peacefully agree to some sort of transition of power. I guess it was this week that Mike Pompeo in a presser gave a response to someone who inquired about the transition process that included him suggesting that there would be a peaceful and perhaps efficient transition, one imagines, to a second Trump administration, in which case there's not really a transition. But at any rate, that answer put a lot of people on edge. And my own feelings about this are that an actual coup, probably a really low probability event, and Donald Trump is probably in his feelings and is doing precisely the sort of ridiculous antics that we've all come to expect from him. I think it's very bad on a lot of levels, but I also think there's some context that's worth considering that could help us understand this. But lots of people are very concerned about it. And Jason, I know that I've seen a few tweets from you that give me some indication of where you are on this. And given my own feelings, I thought it was only right to have someone who follows these things closely 
who has a, a, a position that I would say sharply contrasts with my own. So maybe you could lead that on this for us. Thanks, Mill. Uh, yeah, I don't have a firm position on this, actually. I go back and forth from day to day. Trump is very good at pretending to be an autocrat and an authoritarian. He does, I, I've called it performative fascism. Um, <laughs> but uh, how much is real? You never know. And historically, with other cases, what's the damage of performative fascism without much follow through? Uh, I think that he doesn't have the courts. The margins are too large. He did something very clever, uh, which was to use COVID to create COVID denialism among his supporters. Uh, so they would show up on election day uh, and then uh, and create and then he uh, attacked the post office and uh, and claimed that uh, mail in votes were fraudulent and was hoping to have a large enough lead on election day so that he could say, as his press secretary repeatedly said, whoever wins on election day wins. So that was the plan. It was a very clever plan. It shows that he had more follow through that than many people think, but it didn't work. I think the Republicans have the Senate, so uh, they have the courts. Um, you know, that's what they care about. They need to get Donald Trump's voters to the polls in Georgia. They can't have him start flipping out at the two Georgia Republican Senate candidates. So there's a clear pragmatic reason why they need this. But the main plan he had didn't work. I spent a lot of time calling attention to it. But I'm not seeing, you know, I, I hate to be corny here, but the institutions are too strong and the Republican Party needs him for his voters. But why do they need him more than that? They need this as long as they have the Senate. Uh, they have the Supreme Court. They have many state legislatures. Well, I'm not I'm not, you know, when I tweet, I tweet the perspectives of various people because I like this Bill Crystal article the other day where he said if there's a one percent chance that that this works. We, we should be worried about it. It's something we should talk about it because it sure looks like it. That's what Trump is good at. He's good at performing this kind of fascist theater. As long as people perform the fascist theater, I think you've got to take them seriously. And I'm committed in my work because my work is international in scope to looking at the United States and thinking of it as a country among other countries. But I think a lot of this didn't work and the election margins were too large. I think there's one way uh, in which it did work and it's unfortunate, is there was a poll, and again, we're not at a time right now where we couldn't put a lot of stock in polling, but there was a poll I saw today about the number of people, number of Republicans and Trump-supporting Republicans who actually believe this fiction, and it's a shockingly high number. So in that sense, it gets a little tiresome, and people who listen to this podcast, now I always hate when this, this constant, like, without evidence, without evidence, without evidence in the news reports, it's like, once is enough, we know that there's no evidence, none has been presented, and we're clever enough to realize that. But then you realize that the people uh, you know, who are answering this poll do appear to believe that it's true. And I've mentioned this a number of times in the past, and I'm only mentioning it now because I see his book on, on Nancy's uh, shelf, we're recording at Nancy Wallman's house, when Robert Conquest was asked if Stalin's genocide was equally as bad as Hitler's genocide, and he said, no, the Holocaust was worse. And when asked why, he said, I just feel it so. And that's what everyone is kind of responding to here. I just feel that it can't be right. It's the apocryphal Pauline Kael quote of like, how did Nixon win? I don't know anyone who voted for him. It's the Trump version of that. These people go to rallies. They get, and a number of people who said this 
to me of like, oh, go to this, this, how could they be seeing this? I go to this rally, it's full it's of people. It's extremely concerning. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like you're seeing it's fucking, crazy. you know, maybe 5,000 yeah. people in a very big state. And those are the real diehards that come out and they're clad head to toe in Trump gear. And that's, you know, who they are. And they're interesting enough to talk to and get a sense of why they think that way. But one of the things that you often find is that there is this disconnect from reality in certain aspects. I'm not as bold as to say that they're all kind of out to lunch and everything. No. But when you start thinking that the media is foursquare against you all the time on every issue, and I get, you know, the, the media is liberal. They just think it's crazy. The rest of it, okay, fine. But there's a point at which it really bores a hole in your head and you start thinking that they're lying to you about everything. And in this case, it's even the election stuff. They, you know, it, well, the margins are too big. It's like, well, you never know what happened. You know, they, they called this before. Well, they didn't call it before. It was a setup. The setup, as, as Jason points out, was this was, un, I mean, he was making this claim that the election was fraudulent long before a vote was cast. So what the hell is the man doing? Including after he won in 2016. In 2016, yeah. It's not a a small issue. For me, the thing that is most disturbing, um, I already just sort of like categorized Trump's behavior as disturbing, and I don't want to like dwell on it every single moment of every single day because you get tired. we don't have too much in the future. Uh, Yeah, we got like 73 days (laughs) left of this shit. Well, Uh, until the next election. Um, (laughs) You're an optimist. (laughs) So the... The Senate is going to come down to what happens in Georgia. And I think it's very likely that both Republicans will win. Certainly David Perdue will win. But I Mm -hmm. think I think both Republicans. It's a Republican state and Trump uh, underperformed Republican senators and the House, certainly in really surprising ways. Like Trump is the problem. Right. Yeah. Georgia is not a Democratic state yet. It might be in the future, but it's not yet. So, like, I think they're going to probably win. But what did they they think that they needed (laughs) to do to win? What did they think that they needed to do to win? They needed to, both candidates needed to say that the Republican Secretary of State should Mm -hmm. resign. Yes. Because he oversaw a fraudulent election for which evidence they brought up nothing. 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 Yeah. yeah, including like, you know, the Republicans won in various seats elsewhere, but they feel like that's where the heart of the Republican Party is. And that to me is most disturbing. Like if if we take and I don't necessarily take uh, as for granted that Trump is an aspirational fascist, but if we take that like he wants to do, he would like he dreams of being more authoritarian than he's allowed to be. And I'm totally with it. He sure. would love to be more no, authoritarian than he can. But, yeah. Um, the thing that um, that has been shocking to me for five years now is the extent to which people, including people who have advertised themselves as being against concentrations and abuses of power, uh, as being constitutionalists, as being fill in the blank various things that I might agree or overlap with, um, have in these moments of crisis said, well... Yeah. Um, I think that the heart of the Republican Party here are people who believe this crazy bullshit. So I am going to yeah. make my tailor my statements according to that. Mike Lee, constitutional conservative, a guy who I like, I know, and I like, and he's one of the I think one of the best people who came out of the sort of the Tea Party movement. Um, he's a, a person, generally speaking, of integrity. 
five days before the election, gives a uh, performance in Arizona. I believe it was in Spanish even, hmm. um, which is, you know, kind of impressive, um, in which he compared Donald Trump to like Mormon uh, leaders uh, and like Mormon religious leaders of yore. Um, uh, crazy. Like Mormons are like, dude, what are you? And you're being skeptical about fascism here. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 look, so, I, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm an incrementalist about the stuff that I'm willing to, right. willing to believe. But Mike Lee is out there sending statements like it's totally normal to investigate to the limits of our investigative abilities. If there is election fraud and this and that and the other carefully tailored mm -hmm. and whatever, you can just feel it in every single word. He can't say the thing. He can't say the thing, which yeah. is like what Trump is saying on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, mm -hmm. is absolutely fucking cuckoo bananas. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is embarrassing to be an American while he's the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, we can compose our own identities separate from who holds the office. Mm -hmm. But it is appalling how he is behaving. And if your reaction to how he's behaving is limited to 10 days after you've described him as a religious leader— um, is limited to, like, it's really important to investigate for all. <laughs> a cult leader. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, I had a certain amount of respect for Mike Lee amongst a bunch of people who I didn't respect at all. And it's, again, <laughs> it's a pretty low bar. But re recall Billy Bush pussy tape gate. The f day that followed that was the Utah delegation was like, no. Yeah, this guy's he's, he's not for, our president. For half, a minute, for half a minute there, it looked like that might torpedo him that to might, some people. Oh, my God. And, and to it, some it, people. In hindsight, it's like, I mean, people <laughs> forget that, like, you know, there was porn. There was a porn star that uh, was talking about, like, her relationship. And then everyone's forgotten her name, Jessica Drake. <laughs> Do you think <laughs> yeah, that, I like, I mean, I remember about. Juanita Broderick's name, but you can't even keep up with the porn stars that were the coming out against Trump. Scandal. And these are Mormons, yeah. for fuck's sake. And the funny thing was, after that, it was the, the, the Mormon governor. It was uh, members of Congress. Josh Chaffetz, yeah. It, yeah, it was Chaffetz. It was everybody saying, Mike like, we crapo. We can, Mike Crapo, it was like, we cannot do this. And I think the one good thing that comes from this completely insane exercise that I think is only going to get more insane, I don't think Trump is not the type of person that's like, all right, I'm going to back down now. You know, you, you won. Like, this is, not, this is not who he is, right? And the only good thing about this is it further shines a light on these people who are so, I mean, they're in the bunker, if you want to extend the fascism uh, uh, analogy. They are like, like, you know, maybe with our super uh, V2 rockets, the Soviets will be pushed back and the Battle of the Bulge, and we're going to stick with them. It's like, no, no, it's over. It's over. Like, go just pretend you always hated them now. In the number of people that are yep. doubling down on this I, is but really it, depressing. But it's not him. It's, it's, his, it's his voters. That's the thing. He will lose power tomorrow. Mm -hmm. His voters live on, and he's whipping the stuff up. Well, I want to I want to talk more about this in general, but I also want to dig into the F word, which has come up a number of times in this yes. conversation, which in most contexts never, ever gets defined. And I think it's very important because there are a couple of words in the English language, which today are, you know, just awful to direct at people. You call someone a, a neoliberal or a fascist <laughs> or a racist or a socialist. And these words, Jason Stanley seem... has called somebody all of those things, but socialist. This week. <laughs> I'm just saying those, those words all I seem know. like, like I, important under, I know. You under his seem, breath this hour. They seem important. <laughs> they seem to carry a great deal of meaning, but the meaning so far as I can tell is pretty nonspecific at this point. So I want to do that, but that's a placeholder quickly. 
because I think it's relevant because we do have a diverse audience and I have seen a lot of different kinds of commentary taking place about election fraud that's, mm-hmm. that's happened um, or hasn't happened or that's been alleged. And I think it's worth saying a couple of things. One, the president was making allegations about ele- election fraud long before any of the stories that have begun to emerge about what is generally speaking small scale shit that has happened in different places, whether it be screw ups or malfunctions or perhaps even evidence of actual malfeasance where a person gets arrested or some other shit or some investigation has taken place. And that's that's worth noting. Second, the margins at this point are massive. And this has been said already. And they're so massive, even when they seem to be thin. We're talking about tens of thousands of votes here. Like It would actually have to be a pretty substantial coordinated effort to actually cheat in the way that he is describing. And there is no evidence of that kind of massive campaign of fraud. And that is very important. And that's different than the Project Veritas. We got this one guy at the Postal Service who apparently is recanting, (laughs) but then is not recanting or is kind of recanting. I don't give a fuck. It's one guy, one Postal Service, that does not a grand conspiracy of election theft make. And it's, it's worth just putting that in a nutshell and then finally saying it, it's, there's, there's people on. outside yeah, yeah, yelling. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the mics won't pick it yeah, up. Yeah. But it, the, the last thing that I think is worth saying is when you're in a country where a fairly large percentage of the population does in fact believe that the election was stolen, and as you said, Matt, they're not going anywhere. They will still be here after Trump leaves office. It is our responsibility to care about actual instances of election fraud and to investigate those things to the extent these institutions matter. A lot of the casual dismissal of election fraud is something that gets under my skin a little bit, especially considering that after the last election, the only thing I heard about for a year was how vulnerable our systems were and how they'd been corrupted and hacked and how various bad things had taken place. Everyone believed that the system was vulnerable and that cheating was likely to happen. That was the one thing that candidates and their advocates on both sides of the aisle agreed on just before the election happened. And I I think most of that was ridiculous boosting for your candidate and condemning of the other side. It was fake. They didn't actually believe it, but they said it. And now only one side is willing to even acknowledge that these kinds of things can happen. And I I think that that's wrong. I think it is appropriate to investigate legitimate instances of voter manipulation or whatever the fuck you want to call it. And it's, it's not a good idea to dismiss it simply because it's coming from a side that you don't like. So I said all of that. Jason, you can respond to that if you want to, but I'm also interested in having you Give us some parameters for this conversation about fascism in the year 2020, sometime removed from the origins of fascism sometime after World War I, which is not, not quite today. And I know in your book, you make a point of sort of distinguishing between fascism properly understood and whatever the hell it is we're talking about when we say fascism today, to the extent there is any sort of uniformity there. First of all, I think we have been talking about fascism so far. We've been talking about one aspect of fascism, what the fascism scholar Federico Finkelstein 
calls in his newest book Fascist Lion, the entire construction of a novel reality to occupy. <clears throat> but, so, could you, but could you tell me what fascism is? Explain it to me like I'm... Yeah, so fascism is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, minorities, and leftists. He says he is the nation, and only he can save us and restore the nation via a transformation to greatness. So... How, how is that different the, than authoritarianism or totalitarianism? Uh, fascism is one kind of totalitarianism or authoritarianism. So communist authoritarianism, equally bad for reasons already said, and body count at least as high as fascist totalitarianism, is a kind of perversion of reason. So it's like we will plan society in a way that eventually in the future it will be perfect and many people will be, die in order to get there. One way of thinking about the difference of, between these kinds of authoritarianisms is one is past-oriented in its myth, and the other is future-oriented in its myth. One does terrible atrocities in order to create a future utopia. The other looks back at a mythic past that it promises to restore. So they're both kinds of authoritarianism. Arendt simplifies matters and origins, of totalitarianism in characterizing them. She says communism and fascism differ in that they're both grand theories, but in one, race replaces class. So fascism is based invariably around ethnicity, race. Those are the immigrants, J the minorities. J Jason, quickly, um, how important is race when you consider that fascism and the origins of actual existing fascism, to borrow a phrase from Eastern Europe, uh, actual existing fascism comes when Mussolini marches on Rome and there are, you know, Jewish members of, of Italian fascist parties. And it isn't until 1936 and the, you know, when the Nuremberg laws yeah. hit in, in, in Germany that they say, as a sop to you, we'll be really racist yeah. too. But previously, I mean, you have a fascist movement that for 14, 15, 16 years really wasn't particularly racist. Absolutely. So the fast, there's a long fascism literature for decades. Italy and Germany are so, so different that there are theories of fascism that apply to one and not to the other. Mussolini and Hitler are very different characters. So when you're talking about fascist leaders, you're talking about two very different personalities where, you know, if you're talking about Trump, he looks much more like Mussolini acts uh, than, than, say, Hitler. So to, to generalize, to bridge the Italy-Germany divide. I would put nation where race is. Mussolini comes around to racism in the mid-30s, and the fact that Jews are an accepted part of an Italian society does not mean that, that Italian fascism is not involved in anti-African colonialism, the desire to subjugate other populations under your military power, as the Italians did with Ethiopia, where they killed many people. But in general, Italian fascism doesn't have the body count of German fascism. And, and when you generalize beyond these two cases, which I think is vital, it's vital to look at Latin American movements, which start in the 1930s. Uh, I mean, we're really, we geek out at a certain point here. Um, I, n note that my characterization of fascism didn't pack racism into it. But I think Latin American fascist movements, which like Mussolini, 
focus on the pure group of the nation. But I think most fascisms, like uh, Hindu fascism, RSS, uh, I mean, you might say it too isn't about race, it's about religion. Uh, because in, uh, in India, it's about Hindu nationalism and getting the Muslims out. But, you know, you can convert them. That's acceptable according to that variety of fascism. There's one identity, and how you characterize that identity, uh, it's more general than race. Arendt got it wrong. Arendt really focused on German fascism. Well, let, um, let, let me just German... ask you this, though. Um, doesn't that kind of prove the point, though, that there's not a lot of utility to the word fascism if the two major fascist groups, if we're excluding Franco on this, are so disparate and so different? I remember when I reviewed Naomi Wolf's book about fascism during the, the, the Bush years, I had a similar complaint. The question is, when you list these things, I have a million countries that, that, that sort of apply. When you talk about Latin America, I mean, I think a lot of people would think of Eva Perón. Pinochet. But, well, and, and Pinochet, absolutely. But one I'm thinking about is, where is the difference with Hugo Chavez? I mean, is Chavez a fascist? Deifies the past? Everything is named after Simon Bolivar, the, the glorious past of Latin America? Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I, I make these points myself. So uh, this is a book which I like even though it's by a far-right fascism scholar. Can you tell us the uh, name the of, of that book for, for listeners who the cannot fascist, see it? It's, the, it's James Gregor's work. From, yeah, from Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fascist Persuasion and Radical Politics. Yes. And he argues that radical movements often end up going fascist, that Stalin ends up being a Russian nationalist and declaring himself the great leader, just like Hitler, that Mao ends up going that way. He sort of overstates the case, but he makes a case like you can't have a communist single leader uh, who's just going to be a lifelong leader. That's inconsistent with that ideology. So it comes under tension. So a Chavez absolutely did the mythic path thing. So go back to my initial characterization of a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of challenges posed by leftists, communists, socialists, liberals are really masks for, for communists in this ideology. Labor unions are masks for communists, so fascists are obsessed with labor unions. My view of fascism is that it's a permanent force in politics. It's not something that's located in two movements in the interwar period in Europe. And a lot of the fascism literature divides along that axis. Is fascism something we always need to worry about? Or is fascism just a historically located thing? And I'm on team fascism is something always to worry about. It, it didn't exist before industrial society because fascism involves this thing of the communists are coming to steal your private property. <laughs> We're going to protect you. But it's a permanent force in modern society. It's the current version of the kind of demagoguery that Plato discusses in Book 8 of The Republic, when he says a tyrant will come and split the people, raise fears, uh, say this group is coming to threaten you, you need me to protect you. Fascism is, is the modern contemporary version of that, where you have the nation under threat from, from you know, immigrants, minorities, leftists. Uh, it's a particular construction. And it's going to take a different form in different societies. Italian fascist architecture and German fascist architecture look very different um, because 
those are different societies and the fascist leaders will have a different culture, will have a different way of being, and they're going to draw on different anemones. So in America, they're going to draw on race. In Brazil, Bolsonaro isn't really drawing on race because that doesn't have as much uh, of a history there. So the history of the country matters. And the way I present fascism is it's the far-right anti-democratic thing in post-industrial society, which is a very general thing. And that's a long history of thinking about fascism that way. And there's another long history to, to say it's a historical accident. It just happened. It won't happen again. Given that the F word has certain radioactivity that even communism doesn't quite have, although it should have um, in, in many respects, but like we can see the concentration camps when you say fascism. Um, is there some use to say that's nationalist populism, for example, right? Like it's right. something that's everywhere. Le Pen, are they fascists? I don't know. Maybe some right. of them are. Maybe the older one was, right. the younger ones, maybe not. But like, it, they're definitely nationalists and populists. And they're anti-globalist, right. and they're anti-elitists, <laughs> and they're pro-welfare state. Like, we can see some commonalities. Right. right. Uh, and we can see some commonalities, but like, when you drain the F word from it and start like talking about those things, might it be more useful to not use the radioactive word? Or is that a necessary slap across the face to wake you up to combat the threat? And I'll add something, Jason, because you say in your book that fascism is mostly a male movement and you talk about patriarchy and things like that. And if we look at, you know, Front Nacional, obviously uh, led by a woman now, for right, many, yeah. many years and uh, has a niece uh, who is an up-and-coming star too and Pia, Scher Pia Schersgaard who's the head of Danske Folkepartiet which is the far-right uh, party in Denmark and you have this all over but to, to Matt's point and just to say um, ask the, I'm going to ask the same question that Matt, Matt asked and, and just say one thing isn't it useful to you to use the word fascist because most people when they hear fascist they think Nazi they're not thinking about Franco or Salazar yeah. or something. It's just an insult. And people say, oh, you're just using it as an insult. I understand, obviously, from talking to you that you have a m much broader vision of that. But it's also kind of what a lot of people do, isn't it? Absolutely. So it can, you, you, I'm using a word uh, that, uh, that, has that can be strongly associated with specifically the Nazis. And I don't mean to use that word that way because precisely my point is that it's something i mean i draw on work by uh by americans by uh, you know tony morrison in 1995 her piece racism and fascism so there's a question about utility of the uh, about what language we should use and in some sense i have this new paper called fascism as a social kind i'm working on where i go through all the other possible words we could use hmm. uh you know uh, nationalist populism uh, right-wing authoritarianism and argue that none of them captures uh, this field space uh, accurately. Hmm. Um, so that's work that needs to be done. In this new book, which I just, which I just book talked, Cynthia, Cynthia Idris Miller, she backs off of fascism. She says she uses the term extreme right and far right. The title so, of that, that um, book is Hate in the Homeland? In Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. So yeah, I committed myself to the term fascism because it's a word out that we, I think we need a word for these global movements that Greca in France, Guillaume Fay, India, Brazil with Bolsonaro, Trump, they, there's a certain kind of politics they practice that's uniform. 
my book is not about fascist regimes, it's about fascist politics, the kind of conspiracy theory mongering, fear mongering, truth defying, patriarchal, male, traditional family, this kind of uh, anti-gay, uh, anti-gender ideology, this kind of structure that we see uniformly across the world right now. We need a name for this politics, the kind of way of winning elections that we've been discussing this whole time. Uh, now we're discussing whether the term fascism undercuts that because it shuts people's brains off. You know, uh, that, that's, that's a risk. There's, so there's a question. People have criticized my work by saying that it doesn't function politically the way it should. I was focusing on accuracy. I'm trying to characterize what Modi is doing. You can, uh, you know, what Bolsonaro is doing, this, this uniformity uh, in different countries where you have this ultra-nationalism threatened in many cases by immigrants, by minorities, uh, this, this absurdity about the facts. I'm prepared to say that the term fascism there's no like fact of the matter. It's a social kind. E even when we talk about liberal democracy or liberalism, we're talking, there are many different versions of liberalism. You're going to have the same complexities here. Nevertheless, there's a class of societies we'd like to talk about as liberal democracies that roughly share some of the same features and ideals. You do talk about the techniques of fascism specifically, and we've mentioned a few of those things, this sort of alternate history yeah. and an assault on facts, but also the, the subtitle of the book is about this battle of us versus them. And you describe the fundamental danger of fascism as this dehumanizing of others. And there's a sense in which, at least when I look at American politics, and, and really like politics across the board, like those are things that happen all the time. When you are campaigning in the United States circa 2020, yeah. you talk about how awful the other guys are, how the government Absolutely. is built and the system is built to benefit the wrong sort of people. I am the leader who can ensure that it will benefit the right sort of people, namely all of you, my fine supporters. And there's a sense in which even the most eloquent erudite and respectable politicians in American politics do often talk about sort of now being the time when grand miracles and great works will take place. And if you only elect me, occasionally they'll say things like we and us and perhaps even yes, we can. But there's a sense in which it's yeah. the same sort of romantic idealism and wish casting and I, I wonder if that, if that That's dynamic politics. is important to, to just generally recognize. Because when I think about politics broadly, I don't think about the continuum of fascism very much. And I, I actually worry a little bit about the danger of, of overstatement. When I saw Donald Trump in 2016, I saw Carnival Barker. And when I would hear mm, people yeah. say that he is, oh my God, he's a totalitarian strongman, he's a fascist, and when he gets into office democracy is going to die because we all know that democracy dies in darkness yeah. and what's darker than a dictator. But looking at it all these many years later, am I, am I right or am I right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Welcome so, to our so, world. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I told you I'm a score. So Camille, <laughs> so, Camille I, so very early on, like the first, the first Republican debate, I said, 
Trump's going to win the Republican nomination. When he said, hmm. when they asked him, what the first question they asked him, they said, why are you a Republican? You've donated to Hillary Clinton. You've donated. And he, he said, he snapped back with, I've donated to half these people in the room uh, on this podium. I donated to Hillary Clinton so she would come to my wedding. That's how politics works. And I was just like, he's, you know, and, and then his announcement with the Mexicans uh, are rapists and some are good people. So my view has always been that he can have political success and bond his supporters to him in a kind of uh, fascist bond, the kind of bond a fascist leader has to their supporters, the kind of blind, I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose a supporter bond. Nothing follows about his success or aptitude as be in being in power. I assumed the Republicans would use him. In fact, he's done more damage than I would expect. I didn't think he would follow through on the immigration policies in the hmm. way that he has. He has pretty much sealed the borders. <laughs> he is, we've, he's done wow. dramatic uh, change Co- there. COVID has done a uh, good job of, of doing the rest of that sealing of the borders. So, yeah. Right. So my work is about the politics. People have this naive sense of politics that it works by people sitting around and trading reasons. That's not how politics works. This kind of politics has always been successful and it always will be successful as long as there are certain problems in society that socialism will solve. But I want to push you back to but I want to push you back to the to the general recasting that I tried to do a moment ago, which is to say that everyone engages in us versus them politics. And oh, to right. the extent Absolutely. it's yeah. sort of dangerous uh, under fascism, I think that it's fundamentally dangerous. And I think the dehumanizing that you referred to, yeah. I'm, I'm going to introduce some other elements that are not the same as the ones you're introducing, not because I'm more on that side, but because they haven't been introduced. But if I were to say that some segment of the population are the deplorables, that those people are irredeemable, that they're clinging to their guns and their Bibles, I I might be, in a word, dehumanizing those people and suggesting that they are less good. If I were, for example, to cast, and I'm not taking a shot, but I know that you've done this casting, but if I were, for example, to cast this election and the most recent election and the one before as effectively referendums on whether or not you endorse white supremacy then I am, in a sense, doing that otherizing. And it's a very effective kind of the otherizing because it seems to resonate pretty well with a certain half of the electorate. Isn't that the same sort of dangerous tactic being employed? And might that be more important to acknowledge than that continuum of fascist governments, which extends from buffoonish clown to murderous genocide. I think Trump has caused the death, has helped, you know, has, on, on several issues. He hasn't made much progress in halting climate change regulations, but damage on climate change and obviously with COVID-19 history, we'll look back and we'll see how much culpability he's had there but his incompetence and use of it, cynical use for electoral purposes. That said, it's a great question you're asking. So full confession, my press made me add the subtitle The Politics of Us and Them. And it's far (laughs) too general for the reasons that you're pointing out. Uh, As Arendt Arendt has this categorization, which I think is too simplistic, 
of saying that communism and fascism are two sides of the same coin. One uses class to other eyes and the other uses race. Again, she's thinking about the German case as her paradigm case of fascism. So there's different methods of otherizing and dehumanizing. There's many methods and all politics is going to be us-them politics. So absolutely. You can't really, it's going to be hard to do politics without, uh, I mean, you, there are going to be very inclusive ways of doing it. It's, it's we, not, uh, I forget Sanders' slogan, but, you know, there are inclusive mm-hmm. ways of doing it. But politicians are going to engage in, in some us-them stuff. So it's a very specific kind of us-them thing mm-hmm. that, is, that is fascist. It's uh, the, the, the whites, the Hindus, uh, the Jews and Israel, you know, our purity is threatened. It's a politics of purity. And disgust, like when Tucker Carlson says, and Tucker Carlson is the person I'm probably most worried about. um, When Tucker Carlson says, immigrants, it's not the crime that worries me, it's that they're dirty. It's that kind of comment that is the sort of feel that I'm talking about. Trump engages in it repeatedly when he constantly connects immigrants with, with criminality. This is something that's part of our history. We've seen it in the case of race and racialized mass incarceration, back to lynching. So that way of connecting the population to laziness and criminality, it's uniform and everywhere you go. So my theory is like this supposed to be this universal theory of fascism. It says when you want to target a group as a them and, and, and dehumanize them, not as to win the election, but for violence. You call them rapists, lazy. You say you need to force them to work. This is the rhetoric that does it. And then it's remarkable the kind of violence that happens. Even though the outgroup men are supposed to be rapists, the outgroup women are subject to horrific rape and war, as happened, for instance, with the Rohingya or with black women in America. So it's that kind of othering. It's a very specific kind of othering that you're doing. The men are criminals, rapists, and lazy. The women, you don't even, when they're salient, they're like, you know, loose prostitutes or something like that. And then Uh, And that justifies a particular kind of mass violence or mass incarceration against that that group. Yeah, as you sort of are hinting at here is that this happens everywhere, right? You can find this, of course, in African countries that people who, you know, stream across the border are lazy mm-hmm. and they feed off the welfare state, et cetera. Everywhere. They bring pestilence South Africa and they bring Zimbabwe. disease. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this, this happen, happens, you say, the Rohingya, this is happening to Venezuelans who are uh, going towards Argentina, Colombia, and Brazil. They're being beaten and murdered and the rest of it. So the, I guess the question is, is this, because, I mean, we care about this term for a lot of very specific reasons, because it, you know it's a freighted term and it really activates people. So I guess the question is, when I'm reading the book, every single thing that you say I can think of in analogous version on the other side of the political aisle or something that's maybe not a sort of left-right thing, but you know, people who wouldn't typically be seen as fascists who actually, you know, I mean, so for instance, you talk about, um, you, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders, if you, if you watch him in the 80s, which I spent a lot of time doing, watching all these old speeches that he did that were covered on, on local public access, he really just spends all of his time attacking the media in a kind of Chomskyan, you know, uh, manufacturing consent way. There is not a speech you can get through where he doesn't attack the media. And and, and for those uh, listeners who haven't read Jason's book, the media is a big thing and the fake news thing. And that is one of the tenets 
that you say of of the kind of fascist mind and the fascist ideology. Um, you know, he's he's actually been very critical uh, of of immigration until fairly recently, where he took a bit of a turn yeah. on that, and <laughs> and it was you know, yeah. um, immigrants depress working class wages. There's a sort of element of that to it, but not that immigrants are rapists. And no, no, no. So, so and yeah, I mean, it's leading <laughs> leading to this, and so you know, the the other things of like you know. Uh, you say in the, in, in the book of, uh, you know, corruption is a, is a big theme in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. You say, you know, fascists always, I can't remember the phrase, but it was something like fascists always talk about draining the swamp. Run anti-corruption campaigns. Yeah, I, but, mm-hmm. you fascist, know, that's Bernie Sanders. But also too. not fascist. Yeah, I mean, Bernie, oh, right. uh, yeah. so Bernie Sanders is like, you know, it's a bunch of corporatists and we're going to throw these bums out because look around you. In, in in Congress, looking around you, you know, on this debate stage, I'm the only one here who takes money from just, you know, regular people, et cetera. It's a version of that. So I guess the question is, what is the percentage <laughs> that one has right. to hit so, to be a fascist? Because I go through so, all of yours, I can find I can find an, an analogous situation for every single thing of a uh, thing that you describe. Well, I know that's a, so you're moving a bit quickly. I'm I'm highly skeptical you can find analogous. Thing, I absolutely said, uh, for, try me, test but, me out. <laughs> Let's go to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, so, so first of all, what you're raising is an utterly standard issue in populism studies. If we want to call it nationalist populism, you know, why aren't Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders? Why don't they count as like Trump? And then you have to answer this. So you're answering that question. Um, but for me and my account is front loaded to be better as an answer to that question. It's the other people with theories like mine who end up grouping Bernie Sanders with Trump. The other people with theories like with with theories who try to give theories about populists end up saying that, well, Trump and Sanders, they both rail against the elite. So they're all populists. Whereas what I do is I say fascism is a particular kind of railing against the elite. It, it involves claims based on nationalism and race, patriarchy. It, it dehumanizes in a very specific way. The outgroup are lazy and criminal. Uh, none of those things you'll find in Bernie Sanders' rhetoric. Now, all theories like Jan Werner Muller, Yasha Munk, all theories of populism, sort of base theory of populism in the populism literature, will say populism is an anti-elite movement, as, is an anti-elite rhetoric. And that's going to, and, and my argument against that literature is it's the same argument as you're trying to give against me. It overgeneralizes. I'm you actually not, a, a, Jason, let's be clear about this. I'm not trying to give you an argument against you. I'm asking you what percentage of these things does one have to have to be considered a fascist? Because as we talked about before, you know, Italian fascism, the ur fascist movements were not racist movements, but, you know, are considered the progenitors of all the fascism that came but after. But by 19, but by... But by 1936, when Mussolini writes La Raza, they are clearly racist movements. And he criticizes the United States for not being, he says, the problem with the United States is they're not openly racist like us. Okay, so but but to be clear, for 14 years, they weren't fascist because they weren't explicitly racist. And of course, Mussolini becomes racist for a lot of reasons other than what he himself personally believed. We don't have a lot of evidence that he was worrying about Jews all the time and keeping him up at night. This is some, so would we say that it it wasn't fascist prior to that, that racial kind of switch in the late 30s? No, I think you're making the mistake of thinking that Fascism has to be anti-Semitic. Italian fascism was not anti-Semitic, and there were Jewish Italian fascists. No, no, I pointed that out. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, the the Mussolini thought that they should rightfully dominate Ethiopia, 
and Africa, and so anti-black racism. But yeah, but anti-Semitism is something specifically coming from Germany. Well, a colonialism um, so, in uh, Europe, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but colonialism in Europe is a fairly common thing, right? And the Abyssinian campaign, I mean, I, it's, it, you, don't, you wouldn't pick up the newspaper every day like you would pick up the Volkische Beobachter in Germany. It would just be covered end to end with racism, both against blacks, by the way, because it was anti-American, anti-FDR. It was like the jazz and the the licentious, you know, sexuality of, of, of black Americans. Hmm. And you would basically see nothing like that in Italian newspapers. I mean, it was more of a function of colonialism, which I guess you could say is, is by its very kind of existence racist. But was it a motivating sort of factor? So I guess what so I'm you, asking you... Do you know what part two of Hannah Arendt's uh, Origins of Totalitarianism is called? Imperialism. Uh, colonialism is central to fascism. Colonialism is Hitler. Hitler, what he's most angry about is the loss of the German colonies in World War I in Versailles. That's what he's most angry about is the loss of the African colonies. Uh, and that's why he turns his energies to colonizing the East, Ru to, to colonizing Russia, to colonizing, uh, to colonizing the Slavs. Uh, colonialism uh, is the at the basis of of, uh, of fascism, and if there's an objection to me, it's that Trump isn't a colonialist. <laughs> That's I think uh, very interesting, but it's also indicates a kind of severability, right? Because we're not doing yeah. colonialism anymore. Whatever it is that we're doing is something, it, and we is the world. Like mm -hmm. there's just not much colonialism. So the like that's yeah. got to be a different. Category, right? I did see a, a recent right. celebratory so, headline so that's, that's, about that's the, the, the incoming Biden administration. And one of the, the thrilling things about yeah. this is that the United States will no longer be isolationist, which right, right, exactly. is not, not the now, dynamic that now, one would expect. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so the, the major issue with contemporary claims of fascism and really the major issue with talking about modern fascism is why isn't this uh, a colonialist undertaking? I think that some there's a lot of important w work to be done here. Number one, and we're bogging down on some academic details in the fascism literature, and we might want to back up away from this. Mm -hmm. But that would be like the the main argument against against the, talking about Trumpism as uh, as a kind of fascist movement. But Sarah Churchwell, the author of I'm blanking on the name of her book, but she is the book on interwar U.S. fascism, where we had explicit fascist movements, including a 20,000-person gathering at Madison Square Gardens, Sarah Churchill, brilliant book. Um, the fascist parties in the United States, which were very popular in the interwar period, were all isolationists. Hmm. They were all isolationists because they wanted to keep us out of, out of the European wars, mm -hmm. as Lindbergh says, those are our allies, but they wanted us to dominate Latin America. So I think there are real vital issues when the age of, of colonialism, as it were, is, is gone by and mm -hmm. fascism is so connected to colonialism. But fascism is a spectrum. You can be more or less fascist, just like you can be more or less democratic. Hmm. So in democratic political theory, we talk about a society being democratic. And that's a sliding scale because no one ever gets a perfect democracy. So you can have more or less democracy depending upon how much people are willing to tolerate each other as co-citizens, tolerate equality and liberty. It's a sliding scale. Similarly for me, these 10 measures of fascism I'm giving in my book are a sliding scale. Like we talk about how fascist the culture is. 
Now, when we talk about whether a person is fascist, it's a trickier thing because a lot of people who were fascist and in fascist parties themselves were not fascists. They were just opportunists. <laughs> so my, my wife was talking to the great scholar, German historian, Peter Gordon, and he was like making this point to her. He said, many people in the Nazi party weren't fascists. They were just people who were wanting to make a buck off the success of this politics. And my wife looked at him and said, if you're in the Nazi party, aren't you a fascist? <laughs> so, uh, so talking about whether a person is a fascist in their heart or whether they're just cynically using very powerful politics of raising fear about immigrants being criminals and coming to rape your women and communists coming to steal your property and labor unions hiding communists and gays trying to transform your, the traditional home. Uh, and how you need to go outside the law and have a powerful leader smash these forces for you. Th that's a structure that we can recognize. We can recognize it as having purchased to various degrees, and we can talk about whether a society is susceptible to it. My commitment is to labeling a very specific kind of politics that we can recognize. Yeah. Well, Jason, we, we kept you pretty late. I want to toss that one more thing at you because I know that you recently had this column about diversity and inclusion stuff, which is something that we've actually talked about a lot here, but we haven't had many advocates for those programs on the podcast. Mm. And I am someone who's you know, deeply skeptical of those things. And I know both in your book and in the article, um, you talk about the premise for these programs and why someone like a Donald Trump might oppose them. And in your casting, you've got Confederate monuments and Donald Trump says, hey, don't tear those down. You're harming our heritage. But the reason why I'm concerned about diversity and inclusion training and a lot of the emphasis on anti-racism that is ascendant now and perhaps even dominant in many elite institutions, mainstream media and in academia broadly, I am concerned about the difference between a world that is focused on equity and a world that is focused on equality. Those are two very different values, and they are frequently at odds with one another. You can't actually shoot at both of those baskets simultaneously. A notion of fairness that's based on equity requires a kind of redistribution that, in my estimation, simply can't be equal under the law. In which case you have these different categories of persons and these very meaningful delineations and perhaps even the dehumanization that you've talked about, the appeal to sort of injured classes and even mythology. I know that you and I have on Twitter talked about the 1619 Project. We disagree about the sort of quality of that project, but to me, like that smacks of mythology. Anyone who says that what makes America exceptional is the fact that it had slaves. That is a, an ahistorical claim. The fact that slavery existed in greater duration and in greater scope in South America, <laughs> for example, like to the extent it made America exceptional, it certainly would have made those parts of the world more exceptional. As others have pointed out, when you have a statue of George Washington smashed by a, a group of protesters and they scrawl 1619 on that statue. This is something that concerns me. And I know that you're sympathetic to those politics, but do you think there's any merit to the perspective that I'm laying out, that there is a potential for danger in that movement and in those ideas 
that ought to be scrutinized because that's certainly my perspective. Yeah, great. Let's talk about this because we got geeked out on the fascism literature for a little. Uh, so diversity and inclusion programs first. I don't have a stable view about diversity and inclusion programs, and I'm certainly against saying, oh, corporations, society will be perfect once J.P. Morgan Chase adds a <laughs> diversity and inclusion uh, program. I mean, uh -huh. That seems to me to be completely absurd. That's not any kind of hill I would die on or, or even have studied. But the term critical race theory, which is a vital area of scholarship that studies colonialism and racism and how slavery, which, as you rightly point out, is an age-old practice. You know, my, my nine-year-old son said to me many months ago, we've been reading Thucydides together, hmm. and, uh, and he said, you know what's permanent, Daddy? Plagues and slavery. Wow. <laughs> you know, so, wow. Uh, you said your so nine-year-old said that to you? Part, bit grim. Yeah, now. because in Thucydides, we're, we're, we're halfway through. Good, know? yeah. And so, yes, uh, so, um, so... Does your nine-year-old uh, say that to you, Welch? You have a nine-year-old? I got a 12-year-old. She says, like, uh, the Kardashians are doing this. Uh, uh, she says, Daddy, you're a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> she she knows all the lyrics uh, to WAP. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, my, my, she my son, my son recently said, Daddy, Hannah Arendt is like Harry Potter for adults. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. So, uh, do you yeah. need do you need uh, us to do an intervention? <laughs> I think, I think he's going to be just fine. But, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think Yale Daddy is doing just fine. <laughs> do his so, thing. Uh, yeah. So, so slavery gets racialized and we need to understand how slavery gets racialized. This practice that, as you point out, is permanent to human societies, uh, sadly gets racialized. And so critical race theory studies that, critical race theory studies how that happened during the Enlightenment, how reason could arise with this perversion of reason. And, by, and it has nothing to do with diversity training. Um, so, uh, so to give you a sense of where I'm coming from in our now multi-year discussions, really, we've been having as, true. as friends mostly, yeah. both my parents are Holocaust survivors. Hmm. And I spent a year in high school and a year in college in Germany. Hmm. And it was the 1980s. The historical fight was being fought. People were saying fascism was just a moment. We need to stop focusing on it in schools. We need to not represent Germany as fundamentally evil. We need to stop making people feel guilty about being German. And there I was. All seven of my great aunts and uncles and every single one of their children were killed by Nazi soldiers. Uh, and in the 80s, you know, all of my friends' grandparents were former Nazis walking around. And it was extremely disturbing to be in Germany. That. Mm. Um, and, and that's when I sort of was like, oh, my God, what must it be like to be black in America? You know, mm. uh, and those analogies don't always hold and they're complicated. But I found it very difficult often even to be in Germany at times. I would have to go to Holland or another country. And then the way Germans acted awkwardly with me when they found out I was Jewish, all of that dialectic. And all of the stuff about schooling and history, uh, the pushback. No, let's let's not say the Holocaust was so central. It happened. Other countries did bad things, too. Why do we have to focus on it? And really, I'm a public voice in, in German newspapers. I write mm. for German newspapers and I write taking the stand I do in America. You have to confront your history in order to be a democratic country. You can't hide your history and you can't say, well, they did bad stuff, too. People always said to me, 
sorry about your family, but you know, you guys killed a lot of people in Vietnam. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that would drive me up the goddamn wall. Yeah. So I think countries have to confront their history. Your objections are to the 1619 Project's rendition of history, and we can argue about that, but countries need to not offload their sins by saying other countries did bad shit too. I think that's, um, I think that's that, right. Hilla, I will yeah. J- no, that's good. Jason Mike. Stanley just denounced historical whataboutism, which <laughs> I'm very happy to hear. Yeah. yeah. I'm very happy to hear my, that because my, I run into that more frequently than, than anything else. It was a feature obviously of the media in West Germany and East Germany too, by the way. And East Germans were also having a difficult time because they were the anti-fascist power. They were the ones that, the people that opposed fascism. But I will say one thing, Jason, I'm sure you noticed this, is that when you said, I have to get the hell out of Germany and go to a place that has a clean conscience during the war, you realized that you had nowhere to go. And it was like, maybe I should just go to the airport and fly home just for the weekend. So I feel a little better, but yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the historian. It might've been George Mossy who who said that if you had if you had told somebody in 1925 and 1930 that one nation will be overwhelmed by a genocidal eliminationist to use Daniel Goldhagen's phrase anti-semitism that 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 would uh, you know plunge the country country and the, the continental war they would say god damn the french yeah you know, after right, the, after exactly. the Dreyfus yeah. affair, the Dreyfus after, affair. You know, and yeah. they, you know, the Vichy Vichy government was obviously quite quite happy to 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 hop on board. Um, but yeah, Europe is a very interesting place. And look, I, I think the historical side is a very interesting thing. Is Germans, and it happened again. It happened again. There's a maybe about five or ten years ago, and not to get nerdy, but this is probably not too nerdy. Is a guy named Jörg Friedrich who um, wrote a book called Der Brand about the. the it said, you know, we're victims too. Because we were bombed. Right, exactly. In yeah. Hamburg, we were bombed in this Dresden. Yeah, Dresden, Dresden. And, and you know, yeah. the, it, it's not a thing. This is an interesting thing because Americans love to put things in the category of left versus right. And this is something in Germany that, that transcends that. Because if you think of Gunter Grass, who's a famous sort of left wing writer in, uh, in Germany, and, and the last book that he wrote, was called Peeling the Onion, where he admitted to being in the SS and lying about it his whole life. Mm-hmm. But he had, right before that, he wrote something called De Krebsgang, the, the, the Crab Walk. And it was about a ship that was sunk off the, the coast of Germany that was just uh, innocent civilians fleeing west, and it was torpedoed. And that was considered a book that was looking at uh, uh, erasing German guilt and looking to turn the perpetrators into the victims. But it's an interesting thing in Germany. But uh, anyway. Maybe I can state differently or at least state in a useful way what i suspect is the core the point of disagreement i know that you are concerned with understating the importance of past awfulness that's taken place in a country and ignoring yeah, in every country relevant meaningful history that ought to inform our collective conscience and help shape policy yep. in meaningful ways and give us a sense of what to look out for I, too, share that concern. I, however, don't know that that's ever been a problem where slavery is concerned in my lifetime um, and likely for at least a brief period before that, Um, just in general, at least in the, the East Coast circles that I've moved in for most of my life. It is certainly possible that in parts of the South things are different. But I suppose what I'm also concerned about is the other extreme which is the capacity for overstatement and the, the indulgence in what Moynihan has described as this perverse other kind of American exceptionalism, America, the, 
the awful America, the irredeemably bad, who has perpetrated all manner of grave crime because try living in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> but but once once you do that, and I think particularly in, in this context, because I don't have the experience to be able to sort of cast this in a German context, but here in the United States, I think there's a great deal that you miss out on when you engage in that exercise. And I, I want to call it perverse. Without, <laughs> I want to call it perverse, you know? Um, so that's, that's my concern. I think in the particular context of the black experience in the United States, it is entirely possible for that trauma to become all important in ways that are debilitating and destructive. And I think if you've actually crossed the Rubicon and you're in that space where it's destructive, and then you take the entirety of the society, of the polity, and you turn it towards that issue, and you're all talking about it in that same way, there's something that might be a little pernicious about it. Now, last thing I'll say about this is I'm walking down the street this morning with my daughter, and I've got a bunch of bags with me because we're recording remotely, and I needed my Pelican with my microphone and all kinds of other stuff in there, and I'm juggling all this stuff. Adderall. But I have my, yeah, in my Adderall. I've got it going already. I have 15 yeah. milligrams Everyone in, knows. you know, early in the morning because I've just got to get going. And a guy sees me walking down the street with my daughter and sees how much care I'm investing in making certain that she's safe. And I'm explaining some things to her and he's nodding at me. He's an older, an older black gentleman. And he says, I see you, brother. Keep it up, man. Keep it up. I know what that is. I know what that is. It's that soft bigotry of low expectation. Oh, it's not. It's not me presuming this. I know it because I've had the conversation over and over again. I encounter this sort of thing routinely where someone will say to me something like, you know, I'm so proud. I'm so happy to see a young black man doing well. I'm Camille. And to the extent I'm good at being a father or I am successful in business or in some other thing. It's not on account of my having overcome racism, et cetera, et cetera. You don't know my story. You don't know my pedigree. You don't know my body, as they say in the streets. <laughs> and I think that's relevant. I think the concern about sort of otherizing, the, the, the project that many people are engaged in, I think, is this flagrantly identitarian project that casts people in these roles that folks imagine they can't escape. The black man as set upon as the victim of unintentional, inadvertent biases everywhere they turn. And the white persons collectively, particularly the white women, those Karens, grrr, doing bad things and thinking bad things about black people because they just can't help it. And being told in certain contexts that not only can they not help it, they'll never not be able to help it. It is the dynamic. It is the magical, mystical force called white supremacy that is sort of permeating everything. And I... I worry about that. I think that is actually destructive. Yeah. So, I feel like it's a retrogression so, so, from where so, so Camille, we were before. Camille, well, I, so, so I'm fascinated by the long history of black intellectual life. And you, my friend, are a black conservative. And black conservatives have existed uh, no, no, as long as there's been black this people. But that's what I'm telling you. It's not the black conservative. Like <laughs> and, this, this, is, this is Camille Foster's view. I don't, I don't know if you can cast me as a black conservative. Like this is this is mine. Certain aspects, certain certain aspects. Right. You, you, I'm you, an individualist. Certain kind of <laughs> a radical right, individualist. The individual, the, 
Right. The, the radical individualist aspect is, 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 is Camille. I agree with that. Okay. But the part, about, the part about you're robbing us of autonomy, just let us alone to create our own lives. Don't talk down to us or pander. The attitude that what, in the face of real obstacles, what is the right psychological and moral and ethical attitude to take in order to succeed, uh, even given the existence of those obstacles, there's a certain view that says the right attitude is to ignore the, the obstacles. Don't treat yourself as a victim. Don't let others treat your, you as a victim. That, that is sort of treating you as non-agential. Uh, and that's a very powerful line of thought. I agree, Camille, that you're adding to that a sort of, and you don't want to identify with a group. Uh, which is not the black conservative view. Yeah. It's not justice. Because I, I care about uh, inequality, but I actually care about it on an individual basis. Your suffering isn't any more important to me on account of the, the concentration of melanin in your person. I don't give a shit. Yeah, if it's I, been terrible for you, I'm interested in helping you. And the notion of shaping policy so that it's addressing the melanated concerns, I think it's grotesque. I worry about that oh, right. and so, I fear so, it. Yeah. For, for all of the reasons so we I, underscored. I, I, and this is where we disagree. I think that you can't understand America without seeing that there's structural issues. My children are African-American and Jewish. My wife is you know, Clarence Thomas's niece. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I mean, by his first marriage to Kathy Thomas. But uh, the um, so when we go through New Haven, you know, they notice that like the COVID neighborhood, as my doctor wife calls it, is the black neighborhood. You know, like like there are structural differences that correlate with race in this country. And uh, and there are politics that work with race. So if you can represent your position as an ideal, which I think it's a great ideal, but there's a reality to the world that belies that ideal. And it'd be great if we could get to the point that you're talking about, but we have to disassociate poverty and racism. We have to disallow politicians from doing racial appeals before we can get there. One, one small thing on this, and I can't speak for Camille on this. I, I will actually. Yeah, uh, go for it, white man. I'm, that's I'm, what I'm, I expect I'm going to explain this to you. Do it. Is that I know that's not something you deny, you know, the history of the United States and the, the unfortunate history in a lot of ways that, that creates these situations is not something that we ignore or we deny or say that should be. It's, it's about how one goes forward in the future and how one addresses those. Right. Uh, and an overemphasis or an overfocus on certain aspects of, I guess people would say victimhood is bad. But I would just say this from an outsider's perspective, and I say this as Camille has been a friend of mine for a very long time, is that the thing that bothers me about it is that I can talk to Camille and have... Uh, points of disagreement um, about a lot of these issues. I know Matt can too. It's why we started a fucking podcast. We didn't start a podcast so we'd all sit around agreeing with each other. That's not that's not <laughs> yeah. of any interest yeah. to us. Um, I think they're both wrong about almost everything. Yeah. And I would actually tell people to go ahead and read Jason Stanley's book, buy it, with the one caveat that don't come yelling at me when, when you realize that everything in it is wrong. <laughs> He's a lovely guy. He's an absolutely lovely guy. That's what we always, we can show that on this podcast. He's a lovely man. But lovely people ladies and gentlemen boys and girls can have very very wrong views and that's fine Jason Stanley's <laughs> great when he's driving through uh, New Haven you know what they're saying is like man he wrote that book on fascism that's, that's just whack uh, <laughs> um, but I would just say this that my frustration watching this 
from from a distance is watching a friend of mine who I know to be incredibly smart and thoughtful on these issues being shut down from even talking about them. And now, granted, uh, Twitter is a very special place. I think it's broader than that. But is the slurs that come out of somebody is an Uncle Tom, somebody is, you know, I mean, the things that you get called every day, I mean, mm-hmm. it's every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different, it's a, it's a type of attack that people don't really care about, by the way, mm-hmm. is you're attacked in a different way. They would they'd be having parades for you. But I mean, this, <laughs> this thing I think is, is, is something that people don't pay a lot of attention to because I mean, it, it's a horrible thing to have, you know, you you reject sorry, this idea of, of identity I, I'm, and and we don't have the equivalent for the whitey birds the honkies don't get it no that's the thing like i have never I gotten white is neutral i <laughs> right and well like, actually it's mostly bad these days it's not neutral it is bad i have never walked down the street and see an old white man mm-hmm. look at me and say you know i just god bless i'm glad yeah. i'm glad that you're doing the parenting thing yeah yeah like, first of all, people don't want to make eye contact with me <laughs> because of my haircut. Yeah. But uh, for like, that just doesn't happen. And with th- that, and this is the way that you've infected me with your with your brain worms, mm. Camille. Mm. Um, is the way in which that we ascribe all kinds of of things to people based on this. It doesn't happen to white people. Mm. It just doesn't. We don't get called oh, Uncle Tom. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm I'm white. Yeah. And I, when I walk down Canal Street, where you are at, I walk right now. down there like my kids. You know, no, when when we when we went for Christmas, uh, you know, Jews go to Chinese dinner. Yes. So well, I brought my kids. My wife yeah. and this, so is, brought, this is specific. I, my, I bring, yeah, I bring my kids to uh, you know the Golden Unicorn in Chinatown, <laughs> yeah. and we will go back to my friend's house. We're walking down Canal Street, and two Hasids, and it's Hanukkah, and two Hasids are like, "Hey, accost me, run down the street. Yeah, yeah. You need some." Uh, you need some menorahs and candles. Yeah. Uh, you know that happens to me all the time. They yeah. run down the street. When no, they I mean see tribal, me. tribal, fair fealty, tribal fealty is a people. thing. No, that, fair that happens sometimes. And, I, and, and look, I, I, I don't, I don't begrudge people. And, and this is this is actually my weird perspective on this. I think identitarian fealty is kind of stupid, and in its worst manifestations is objectively ugly. But I don't begrudge people having it. And to the extent we actually had a policy of sort of allowing everybody to have some baseline level of it, I would kind of shrug at it. But that's not what we do. We have an aggressive double standard. And I think that that is perhaps indicative of something with respect to the otherizing. One, one last thing quickly on the point you made about COVID and structural racism. And, and Moynihan is, is, of course, right. One I very last thing about COVID and yeah. structural yeah, yeah. This racism. Is, this is What's actually, up, Columbo? I just had this thought. It's uh, I was walking out the door. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be brief. And then it's just like the, you can play the entire Sandinista album. And no, back no, and it'll, be, it'll be really brief. I, I, I of course, I was going to say Moynihan is very right i am very bright and and learned and you know i'm just good at many by the things. way i lost my wallet today also, so i gotta ask him for 20 bucks on the way out i got you i'll take care of you baby yeah. i always got you you know i got you girl um but the one thing that i do think is important to note is there's been a profound emphasis on racial disparities related to covid but of course what we know is that the most important sort of attributes of whether or not you're likely to die from this horrible malady isn't race, it's age and infirmity. 
And I do think that paying attention to some of those historical patterns and trying to ascertain, you know, how much of this is a consequence of racism and like the history of injustice in this country, those are fine projects if people want to spend their time doing that. And if you want to set up a nonprofit that focuses on black pain, that's fine for you. I have no interest in it because, you know, people are are suffering and I want to help them in general. It doesn't make me better. It just makes me right. But as <laughs> a joke, as a bit of a joke, but I also mean it. Um, but but I do think that just focusing on the factors that actually matter, that are most relevant to the problem you're trying to solve is nearly always the thing to do if you're actually interested in solving the problem. So if COVID is a concern and I'm concerned about it broadly, that is going to benefit those communities where it is more likely to, to, to happen. But I, I it's also Co going to be Camille, the case think, that I want to focus on age. Like that's the thing. Right. <laughs> and not race. Right. But I think, I, I think you're essentializing race here Am because I? race is not, yeah, you're essentializing, okay. which I really, really dispute here. Good. Uh, uh, you know, race is a contingent factor. The reason race correlates is not because of anything to do with melanin. It correlates because uh, there are correlations between race and poverty and essential workers and lots of people living in in uh, packed together in yeah, houses yeah. Uh, and, you know, contingent aspects that happen to correlate with race because of historical features of the country we, actually, we, we don't in. we don't disagree um, on that i'm and i'm, I'm actually not right. trying to essentialize I, I suppose i'm talking about i was races. just, I, I was just yeah. trying to um, yeah i'm talking yeah. about race as a thing but i want to <laughs> my whole project is unbundling it my whole project yeah. is all of the things that race obscures and you just gave me right. a bunch of them and i don't think talking about race in general in the context of COVID is nearly as helpful as talking about those specific factors because those factors are actionable and the historical injustice is not like it literally cannot be undone. It can't. Whatever else. Oh, oh no. Might I, well, oh, you, well, well, a, rep, a reparation, a broad, you know, the economic inequality uh, that results in people living in neighborhoods and not being able to work at home and those things. Those things have to. That's what I meant by the historical yeah. injustices. I didn't mean go back and yeah, yeah. You know, relitigate. Understood, history. understood. And and that yeah. is perhaps a debate for another day. And I'm going to let you go because yeah. we. It's like nearly midnight, and we've yeah. had you for a while. It was so much fun. Uh, well, Jason, I gen genuinely had fun as well, and I didn't even mind yeah. like the detour into all of all things fascism. I think our listeners will yeah. benefit from it. Yeah, yeah nor did I. I mean, uh, and and God, well, yeah. you wouldn't. Is, 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 is Jason still on the call? He's wrong about <laughs> so much. He might be. He might be. He He's a lovely, lo lovely guy. He's out there in, uh, you know, in his country house, socialist in his country house. Where's the estate, Jason? Yeah, exactly. is, it, is it in Newport, the, Rhode uh, Island? The, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. That That's, is what, exactly I That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. You, bro you broke the anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven, Connecticut. Come back oh, anytime. This house costs as much as. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, half of the apartment you're sitting in. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. shots fired. Yeah. Shots fired. Yeah, this place really is a dump. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet. And yet. <laughs> I, when, I, when, I, when I came to New Haven from New York City, I was like, we can't buy a million dollar house. And they said, they looked at me like, there are no million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, I, I appreciate you um, coming to join us and, and walking into Thanks. the lion's den. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we, we're not bad. We're guys. nice. Like, we're all nice. we, all yeah. we want to do oh, is have no, interesting I, I, conversations. I mean, and I knew, and I know I you love knew talking that. to me. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, 
I, I love this conversation. Yeah. I had a great time. I would have excused myself an hour and a half ago if I wasn't having <laughs> so it's one and I'm sick, you know, to get out. I would have called the, that an abrupt ending, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> Ooh, to, to get yeah. out of the, uh, the being surrounded by leftists trying to say you're not left enough, <laughs> um, which is the battle that's happening right now. Yeah. People think I'm liberal. You're neoliberal. You're a monster. Yeah. Well, people are saying that I'm liberal because I'm because I think that we should unify. We should have Mike Lee. We should have conservatives. We should have socialists. We should have everybody saying no more goddamn Donald Trump. Can't we agree on that? You know, and then leftists say, see, you're being anti-left, you know, because you're saying you're saying, uh, you know, we should like unify on a centrist just mm. to get over this moment. Well, Jason, I so. agree with you on that. Uh, we, that, that uh, everybody, well, not everybody in this room, maybe maybe not Camille. Um, <laughs> most of us in this room can agree to that, but I yeah, do yeah. want to voice my objection and say, I think you're actually too left-wing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to, no, I want to be on that's record what he that he I want to bring that. you to the center. Uh, it's it's, it's right. lovely yeah, in the center. It, I have, I have. Make it worse for you on that, campus. That, oh, God. <laughs> you think Nick Christakis had it bad? <laughs> It's going to be Stanley's going to be the next one shouted down. I don't know what his, if, he's going to write can, a piece about. If about I can help Halloween it, costumes. if I can help it, that's let's, my goal here, Jason. Let's that get is him it. some fifth column merch. Yeah. Force him to wear it. Yeah. 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 I'm going to flip Jason Stanley. Let's make a t-shirt just says Camille is right. Yeah. By the <laughs> way, uh, I just going to say, having read his book, uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> not going to happen. Jason's not going anywhere. I am sorry, left one. <laughs> yes, you are. You are. No. All right, Jason. Thank uh, you, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Well, let's let's wrap up real quick um so matt is is taking a seat after going to empty his bladder you know i i wanted matt to talk to you a little bit about um the public school shit because this week and i suppose next week we'll probably do like a whole covid episode because everything is going crazy um we're gonna shut down the yeah the pandemic (laughs) is back in full swing lots of cases um hospitals Mm. are filling up in certain parts of the country um and concern is starting to rise in new york death rates um, which are necessarily going to be a lagging indicator you actually have to catch covid before you can die from it but could also be that we're doing a better job treating it, which does, in fact, seem to be the case that outcomes are better, but it may have something to do with the age of the people who are actually contracting COVID. I'm actually doing this for an illustrative purpose. The shit is really complicated, and we still, at this late date in the pandemic, at this late stage, do not have all of the answers. Nope. We don't really know what's going on, and the data is kind of shit. It's kind of <laughs> shit, and, and the worst part about it is it happens to coincide with a time in history in which... Um, I believe in science yes. is a kind of superhero thing that you say of like nothing can can penetrate this. I, I believe in science and, and you don't. So therefore, and um, you do kind of. And that's the thing about COVID. I mean, when you have a conversation with somebody about kids and I know that, Matt, this is a, a big thing for you and the transmissibility and the fact that that, you know, um, schools have not been like vectors of transmission and when I tell people, actually, the same thing is true of planes and of subway cars. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, you believe in the science, but you only believe in like the little bit you know about science. Yeah. You, you don't want to know the other been, stuff. Can I, can, I, can I just read this into, the, into yeah. the record? So this is from the New York <laughs> Times today. Transmission of the virus in schools has been strikingly low with a positive test rate of just 0.17%, according yeah. to the most recent data, prompting one of the city's top health officials to declare that the public schools in New York City 
are among the safest public places around. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yet, for all of those helpful signs, Mayor Bill de Blasio is on the brink of shutting down all classrooms across the school yeah. system. Yeah. By far the nation's largest as New York confronts a second wave of the virus after months of months when the city's success at curbing the outbreak, there should be an asterisk there, but it's not um, success at curbing the outbreak made it the envy of the country. The closure could happen by Thanksgiving. If not sooner, I yeah. want that is a when, fucking astonishing. There's one million kids who are in the New York City public school system. One million. I don't know what the number is. You know, it was 1.1 million last year. So it's probably like 900 and something thousand this year because a lot of people, like the whole jets are scrambled. My 12-year-old goes to school one day a week. Um, the five-year-old goes two and a half days a week. So that's nice. We have do you a, mean like goes to the physical building? Yeah. Okay. She's, you know, is remote. You're 12. You can do it, right? Yeah. Like it's fine. And, and like a, it, if you all remember what it was like when you were terrible 12-year-olds, <laughs> you probably would prefer to be indoors and away from your middle school. No, I'd where... smoke at school. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's what I when I was yeah, I mean, all, yeah. yeah, I had a place to smoke. That's all, true. all them bad bitches at the school, so you got to go to school so you can see the bad bitches. I, um, I don't know if I was saying that sort of thing at 12. Uh, probably. Probably. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if we're praying. If we're guessing. <laughs> you know. So what's interesting wait, wait, is that... you that, mean praying? Yeah, praying, praying on... I forgot you were religious. Yeah, both praying and to it. <laughs> for pray, forgiveness. Praying upon... Yeah, praying yeah. for forgiveness for praying upon women. Please. The probable author of what you were just reading for the New York Times is Eliza Shapiro. And yeah. I have singled her out on both... Um, uh, published and unpublished podcasts for this podcast um, uh, for really bad reporting and yeah. being very um, uh, teachers union centric and the teachers unions are, are like central to the story of why mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we might close as early as next week. Very interestingly on her uh, uh, Twitter thread about this, she like laid out, she's very skeptical of like, Hey, look, kids aren't catching this. European schools are open. The yep. 3% threshold, which is the community spread testing threshold that we're creeping up against now in New York, um, in most places, it's like 5% is is like Jeez. kind of generally considered to be what you want to think about for schools because kids, particularly in elementary schools, don't catch it as often. They don't transmit it. They don't catch it. They don't suffer from it. Uh, and we're not seeing any kind of spread. We didn't really see it in the summer at summer schools where everyone went when they were allowed to. Um, and so she was heavily skeptical. And in her thread, she said the reason why this is about to happen is because Bill de Blasio, the country's second worst mayor, <laughs> and we're saying this with Nancy Rommelman on a couch over there in the corner, scoffing, <laughs> because she knows the worst one. Um, uh when he made his torturous negotiations with the teachers union in New York City, to whom he's beholden, um, in the summer about uh, opening up uh, potentially in the fall, he had to come up with that number or else they were going to go on strike, mm. basically. Uh, Corey DeAngelis, who uh, works the Reason Foundation, uh, working uh, which is the nonprofit that publishes Reason Magazine and does public policy work and research on its own and advocacy as well, he's there you know, uh, uh, like let's do the backpack funding guy on the foundation side. He has pointed out and the money follows the students wherever they go. Right. The tax dollars are allocated to the child and take them where they want to. Exactly. Right. Um, He has pointed out that the strongest correlation that you have 
uh, in America right now for whether your school is your school district, your system is going to be open or closed is not the level of community spread of the infection. It's race. It's <laughs> not race. Wow. What is it? Matt it's Walsh? politics. It's the power of the local teachers union. Yeah. Huh. So it is politics. literally yeah. that. So yeah. it is applied yeah. politics. Which means that, that those places have the best policy because teachers unions are about what's best for kids. I believe the children are with you. <laughs> Thank you. Treat them with No. And it, it is absolutely infuriating. And, and my try to keep a brief takeaway from this is, and as longtime listeners will know, I've also sat through years worth of like equity desegregation, like talk and organization in the New York school system. If I hear a goddamn single teacher, teachers union, politician, mayor, whoever in New York, talk to me about fucking privilege ever again, ever fucking again, mm. while they're shutting down schools. Do you know who can absorb a shutdown school? You can. Me. You mm. a rich Why? motherfucker. Because I'm a rich motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a rich motherfucker, but like I'm a motherfucker. Dress like a hobo. I dress really <laughs> badly and you should see my hair. But like it's because we have yeah. the wherewithal to organize um, you know, a pod, yeah. right? Yeah. With fellow parents. And we've done this for the last several months with the idea that at some point they're going to screw it up so badly they'll probably shut down the schools again. Um, and we will be able to absorb that. Not everyone can. The people who suffer from this most are people whose kids have special needs mm. and can't be met. Uh, people who don't have two-parent families. People who are from any kind of, uh, of, of, of poor or disadvantaged background. And you're coming at me with equity? Half of the emails... These people don't like poor people, Matt. You understand that, right? The people in Park Slope don't like poor people. I don't want to (laughs) get there, dude. But the people in Park Slope don't want this. They don't want these schools to close... No, they want them open. Generally, no. no I'm mean, talking about I'm talking about the ones who are the teachers and part oh, of the teachers union. Sure. Then, and I always point. I always say the same thing to the ones that have have um, those clogs with the backs on them, <laughs> the full backed clog. Mm. And you know what I mean if you see them. And it's like they, there's a certain I can pick, I can draw them. They all look the same, <laughs> and they're like always like whinging and whining on Zoom calls about like you know black people that they've never met and uh, they've you know never interacted with, but they know a lot about them because well, they they hurt them. They, they read it. In, uh, in the nation. And just like with uh, fucking Governor Cuomo saying, yeah, starting Friday, and we're taping this on uh, Thursday, mm-hmm. Friday we can't have uh, gatherings of more than 10 people inside of a house. In our homes, our private yeah. homes. I was at a gathering yesterday with 11 people. It, so mean, that will be illegal now. Gathering, well, no, it won't because in... it'll be 10 now because you probably killed one of them. That's <laughs> right. Being in, That's the, true. in the thing. And I, I want to know if I go to Barnes & Noble, if it's open, and Union Square or the Strand, if it's open, they might be shut down for to prevent this uh, genocide and get his book about <laughs> how because I'm like, I don't know what to do now. Maybe I'll get his book and figure out what to do in the next week because he wrote a book about how he's fucking awesome and how he handled it amazingly despite all those dead people. By the way, the delusion on that is so amazing to me is that like you have to start believing your own press. And that's when you know that the, the media is very, very good at slobbering 
I mean, it was kind of we pointed this a long time ago. It was like how people thought about Donald Rumsfeld in the days after 9-11. There yeah. was like mm. women that were like, you know, it was like Tom Jones. They were like throwing their panties at the screen. And then that died pretty quickly when he was like, let's go to Iraq. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> but the same thing happened with him. It was like, oh my God, it's press conference. It's like, let's get him to write a book. But I was like, have you tallied the number of people who have died yet? It's like, no, no, it's a lot. And he's like, yeah. And he's blaming, essentially blaming everybody else too, by the way. He's like, Blame people. People, you're in, I mean, more than anything, he was blaming the people of New York. Because it was like, people, you're in Domino Park this weekend, and you're like 25, and you're sitting on the lawn. Like, nobody died because of that. Literally nobody died because mm-hmm. of that. But you were sending, like, the COVID roadshow to uh, various nursing homes to do, like, soft Jeez. shoe, and people are dropping like fucking flies, and, and he gets to write a book about it. And I, I don't want to sound like a total Trump tard, and I am not, as we know, and I will still append tard yeah, at the end. I will yeah, do it. I don't with care. With Steve Bannon hair. Uh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> By the way, I look at your hair, and I'm like, that is American carnage. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, dude, if we're shaming the Jews, which they've been doing serially, yes. um, if if we're shaming now, it's going to be about Staten Island mm-hmm. and like yeah. uh, various uh, like Trump Trumpy uh, boroughs of Brooklyn because mm-hmm. um, they're seeing the hot spots now. Um, and you never once thought to say, "Hey, maybe getting twenty thousand people to the Black Trans Lives Matter to protests and in." in in June, like, never, never uh, a, a word about any of that. Like people notice, like you can't have Thanksgiving, dude. You can't have Thanksgiving. Yeah, I can. Let them come try to stop me. Uh oh. Where, where are you Your gonna? Where are you gonna? Are you gonna go to? The I'm gonna camp? push. I'm gonna push it to 13. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pushing it to 13. I'm gonna tell you right now. Be at Matt Welch's house mm-hmm. on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be at least 13 people. They go be at so least many black trans people that come stop us. Heaven. That's okay. right. <laughs> I was around the house with black trans people. Um, yeah. Don't I, dare break it. It is, it is are remarkable. Are you gonna get juicy Smollett? There? Yeah. Juicy, <laughs> juicy Smollett. Yeah. He's not trans. Not yet. It? Oh, you're yeah. right. I mean, anything could happen. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Absolutely not. Um, it, is, it is remarkable closing the schools, ignoring the science, and doing what is... And again, we don't know a lot of things about COVID. There's a long list of stuff that I want to know. I want to know how much capacity we built out in regions of the country that weren't dealing with the pandemic when New York City was under siege and everyone was watching what was happening. And, and like hospitals Mississippi were essentially... Like, uh, hospitals are like completely full now. I saw uh, were that, they yeah. building out capacity? Were, were so. we doing that in a, in a serious and, and, and thoughtful way when the, the administration and New York City were sort of stationing these uh, boats off the shores yeah. of New York? We were we boats, building dude. capacity elsewhere? Were we doing? I don't know. But we should well, have some it, idea it, you about know, that. Data is all screwed up. But I was going to say the one the yeah. one thing is the one thing that we do know though is that a lot of the transmission is happening at home, and we're going to close the schools. And where are these kids going to go? They're going to go to their homes. Now, one, I'm not terribly concerned about them catching it at home, but it doesn't mean that the transmission isn't happening in the homes. And to the extent it is, sending the teachers and the faculty and everyone home to be there with one another cooped well, up uh, locking down the city dude that, that it, the may only is, make matters worse when i did that piece for showtime on covid we were like really early because we were like out driving and there was like literally nobody in the street we shot in times square there was nobody there i remember we that. that it was crazy 
And the thing that we immediately noticed, and I was like, hey, maybe there's something about um, being at home that is spreading this. The thing we, like, we interviewed some people from outside. Um, no, that's the other, that's, the other you, that's so crazy. Camille just did something really fucking stupid. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it was. I'll let you imagine what it was. Um, you got a lot of I, tech on our table. Yeah, I know you're like picturing him with like his pants down or something. But um, the, the people that we would go and like interview, they were non-white people in the Bronx that had like seven people living in an apartment that was like three bedrooms. Mm. And they were spreading it like fucking wildfire. And it's like that is to your point of like sending people home who have never met anybody who doesn't live in like Park Slope. And one time they met somebody who lives in Clinton Hill and it was like, oh, my God, it was incredible. But that is that's where I mean, to talk about this stuff being transmissible at home that you don't have big apartments with, you know, two people living in them. There's whole families living in these in these small places. But I know the thing that I've complained about more than anything on on COVID and this is really annoying to me because it's still the case. No one is ever getting on, like, uh, like this is the easiest thing to do. Like, the Times did a very good thing the other day about masks. It was, it was like an interactive thing. The graphics were beautiful. It was very, very well done. But, like, do masks work? Do they not work? And it was like, yes, they do, and here's why. Can someone finally, and I know you've all heard me say this before, can someone finally just do a piece on how fucking COVID is transmitted? Because I still go to places where before I can walk up to the, to the scanner, they're like, hold on, we're wiping everything down and there's like sirens and everyone's got fucking, you know, like S&M gloves on and like rubber <laughs> outfits and like maybe it's just the places that I'm going and they're like spraying things. And it's like, nah, that's not how it works. I think we know that that's not how it works now, right? Like everyone's getting it in fucking churches. Why are they getting it in churches? Not because they're like licking fucking the pews. It's because people are shouting and hollering. And singing and expectorating and doing all the stuff that we won't imagine in a church. Also, hug at church. And they hug at church and they, they you shake hands and your you say, church. I love you, my yeah. brother, and the rest of it. Oh, in your church, they're like pulling the devil out of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if he's in there, you want to get him out? Yeah, yeah. It's like, is that how you get it out? Get the fucking, get your hands off me. Maybe. But that kind of thing, like, it, it, we still don't have, and like, everybody I know, when I say this to them, it's like, God, I don't think that's how it happens. They're like, are you kidding me? No, 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 no. You got to sanitize. Like, you don't just sanitize your fucking groceries. Did anyone put that in the newspaper one day and say, or just a piece somewhere like, hey, by the way, all you crazy people, I get why you were doing this. Totally understandable. We didn't know anything about this disease. You don't have to. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's fucking like, you know, big Purell or something that's allowing this to go. The big off. problem with this, uh, besides the fact <laughs> that people are getting sick and dying, which is kind of a big problem. That's a problem. Um, but yeah. also everyone is going to be doing some kind of lockdowns. Like it's happening in New York. New York, we thought like we turned the corner yeah, and that full on lockdown now, Paris, I mean, France is on strong, Speaking strong of, indication that the uh, Biden administration is interested in a federal, national and a federal mask, lockdown. mask, ba- mask mandates. Um, and also or, a federalized lockdown that lasts yeah. at least or know, a heavy suggestion four, five, you know, like eight weeks, strong recommendation. Yeah. No, New York actually everyone who, who is sitting in a position of saying that the American response was uniquely bad because of Donald Trump. Yeah. Please do look at Europe right yeah, now. It's crazy. Um, especially death rates and hospitalization rates and a bunch of other stuff. Like, I think there are many things that are objectively horrible about the Trump response and the administration response. But as has been the case in, entirely for this, everyone wants to moralize the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, 
those people did it this way. That must be because they act like this and that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like maybe stop with that and like actually try to figure out what happened rather than try to figure out who, which people I don't like that I can blame for their like crappy behavior. I only like, I only like, I only like, yeah, exactly. It's like, this is the whole true. fucking show is about. Um, this is sorry. Called, this is called the blame. It's his it's called the fault. blame. Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, I do like to blame Cuomo just because everyone loves him so much. Like if everyone yeah, hated true. him, I just like, I wouldn't even bother, but it's everyone like, you know, that, that brief. At least moment. he's aged a lot. Oh, yeah, uh, he looks like shit. <laughs> No, but like, uh, but uh, like his brother is the worst, by the way. Can we talk about that for a second? Oh, do we uh, have to? No, I just want to I just want to say his brother is the worst. Acknowledge. I'm I, acknowledge. <laughs> like, you know, I think our listeners are like, should we talk about the minutiae of rates and like, uh, you know, one of the boroughs versus uh, Chris Cuomo is a fucking jerk just, off. Uh, I think I know what they're choosing. <laughs> so send in your votes right now. <laughs> Text me. at <laughs> Cuomo one. If you're. <laughs> but like in places where like California where they had lockdowns and Georgia too where they had lockdowns before they had spikes yeah for a long time yeah. to the extent that they like you know kids couldn't play on playgrounds until last month in California and now when there's actual finally after all this time it spikes because it's a virus and it mm-hmm. acts weird um people are not going to be able to respond they don't no. believe you anymore yes that's Especially right. if every day you're saying, oh, I'm just following the science. You yeah. didn't follow the science. No, you didn't. had not. nothing to do with closing playgrounds. And also, you can't really follow a science that is evolving and doesn't really exist. Yeah. But, I mean, it's hard to like, well, which science are you following? Because it's, that's just on intuition and whim at that point. But the thing that I think that people really have to realize, and, and, and the, uh, my favorite story of the past 24 hours was an MP, and I can't remember what his constituency was in, in uh, England, who uh, mandated a 10 o'clock uh, uh, shutdown for the pubs mm. in every pub in town got together and banned him from the pubs forever. <laughs> it's like the most, pres- uh, you can't come in, mate. No, sorry. You're done. It's like uh, absolutely the best wow, thing ever. Yeah. You got so banned great. forever. It's like a Magnitsky. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Magnitsky <laughs> act for alcoholic British people. But that is great. But I, I mean, the one thing that bugs me forever and because of the politicization of this, you cannot actually say anymore. You can't say anything about like GDP. You can't say anything about, about businesses going out. Like, oh, you care more about business than you do about granny dying. Is that let's try for one minute to stop being sort of hyper-partisan about this and being so stupid about things and realize that an enormous drop in GDP has enormous consequences beyond just like, oh, you want business people to like keep making money. You don't want the economy to create it. No, I don't want the economy to create it at all because the health consequences of that are great. Mm-hmm. The psychological consequences of that are great. And the fact that we've sectioned that thing off as if, you know, the people who talk about that are kind of heartless, you know, sort of libertarian types mm-hmm. that uh, care about the economy more than they care about the people in nursing homes. They're not separate things. Yeah. I do. I do think it's it's also worth acknowledging, and I don't think we have um, the degree to which just COVID exhaustion and lockdown exhaustion yeah. are definitely a function uh, that that this the spike is likely a function of that as well. Yeah, that in various parts of the country that were just much lower risk, they still instituted sort of the same broad sweeping policy of lockdowns. And look, th- this is a complicated problem. 
it's enormously difficult to understand. I certainly was less concerned about this early on because hysterical over-response is generally a thing. There are things that we could have done earlier on if, if we sort of thought to, and certainly I hope would in the future. But it is definitely the case that there have been moments of people making pretty profound, uh, and I think unnecessary errors and most of that has been a function of sort of politicizing the the pandemic and i don't know that we're past the point of doing that In oh fact, god no, we're, we're no, obviously no, 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 not past no, the point no. of doing that that's no. the, the conversation we're having now. no and i would i would advise <laughs> listeners who know more about this than i do because i'm too fucking lazy to look it up but if it is true and i've heard people say this i don't know if this is true that operation warp speed um, you know, and Pfizer says we didn't, we weren't involved in that, but yet it turns out they kind of were. They were, yeah. And the, on the distribution in side. In the distribution yeah. side. And so they're getting, like, look, I mean, obviously this is not a room full of people who are, you know, begging the government to intervene in a lot of things and, you know, throw tons of money at something without really any sense of what's going to happen. But if it does turn out that Pfizer um, or Moderna use this government largesse and this and operation warp speed in whatever capacity to develop a vaccine when everyone says everyone said do you remember anyone who didn't say two years at the least yeah. two years mm-hmm. it was two years a mantra two years and gets this like okay we were 90 percent effectiveness of the pfizer uh vaccine moderna is going to be releasing their numbers tomorrow which is why i didn't sell the stock today but i hope they're good because then i'm fucked <laughs> if they're not but if it's good we're going to be happy um but they like if that is the case, that we are on, I mean, of course, distribution, the fact that it has to be at like negative 38,000 degrees, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of problems with this, but right? We, but we've never tried to solve that problem before. No, we have and, not tried to solve it. And I think exactly that, right. that there's yes. something remarkable about the, the lightning fast pace at which we've yes. been able to achieve this result, but also the specific way that they're doing this yeah. with this like weird RNA based yes, vaccine. Yes, that's not how that's where, done. Yes. Where the, the vaccine itself is going to be like responding to the disease in the exact same way that the malady operates. It's like groundbreaking. And I've, I've heard a very smart person suggest just the other day that this could open the door to an entire universe of innovative new vaccine yeah. treatments that, that we simply had not even been considering. And hopefully that also opens the door to a more permissive sort of FDA regulation. regulation. And generally speaking, I mean, with respect to innovation, like this is, that's a, that's a good approach. What, what other things have we not opened the door to? Prepare yourself for this thing that is going to happen. That it's like, you know, look at the government intervened and they got a COVID vaccine out of the gate. But my, my issue with that is um, if that turns out to be the case, you know, look, I'm not ideological enough to say, you know, no, that didn't happen if it actually did happen. But the one thing I will say, which you cannot ignore, is that Moderna, and you look at their stock price and you look at what everyone's become very, very rich off of this. Uh-huh. I was at a story today in Bloomberg about an uh, MIT professor um, who's become a billionaire, a billionaire from Moderna's stock. Um, and the thing is, is that they're incentivized by the market mm-hmm. to do this very fast because they're going to make a lot of fucking money and bless them for doing it. I mean, let's allow them to make as much money as they can. And, you know, Tyler Cowen at the beginning of this was saying, you know, this is the way you do it is that you have a contest. Do you remember yeah. when he was, he was proposing that? A bunch of, yeah, bunch the, of the, the, the prize. Stuff. And like, that's, you know, that's what motivates people. And I'm impressed by it. But I was saying about listeners, I'm too lazy to look this up. But if the government's response to this has been actually something that has facilitated some of these 
uh, responses from Moderna and Pfizer in ways that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to produce it in that short amount of time. It's not that they couldn't do it with the manpower and the brainpower. Of course they could do that. Um, the government has nothing to do with that. But it's, is, is the speed, the rapidity of it. If that is the case, tell me. And I'll give credit to the Trump administration if I have to. And I'll give credit to government for intervening in, when, in, in a good way that, uh, that has been helpful. We'll I don't sure know the answer to delay the announcement that. until after the results. Oh, About, someone so. predicted that they would say that, that he said that. And of course, the next day he did. About seven, six, seven years ago, we ran a piece in Reason when I was editing it about the development of the AIDS, um, it's not a vaccine, but like treatments. Uh Um, And they had to rip up all existing FDA rules to make that happen and to allow for like a targeted blend of things. And obviously I'm waiting outside of my own depth uh, (laughs) here, but like go, go look it up. But the argument in the piece was we should do that for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did it out of a sense of desperation and public pressure of like, you're not doing enough. Uh, Mm. Let's do this. You you know, it takes seven years, nine years, 13 years to get anything through the FDA. That's wrong, uh, which is correct. Um, Why don't we do that for everything? So like the lessons that can be learned, assuming that the vaccine does happen, why don't we do that for everything? Yeah. Like X prices for everything. So that thing about the AIDS thing is that, is that AZT, which is what people were being treated with was amazingly toxic. And there is the theory, and you know, I'm not up in the sciences, so don't jump on me if this has been surpassed by better, better science. That you know, I mean, we don't see people die like in the wasting syndrome way right. that people used to, and that mm-hmm. AZT was was uh, and the drug cocktails were were, were were partially responsible for that, uh, if not wholly responsible. I'm sure somebody will yell at me for for making a hash of that. But you know, when you see that response, you know, look, if the FDA can 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 allow things to happen this quickly and people aren't dying. And again, by the way, there was this, Camille mentioned this last time, a study, I can't remember which, uh, one of these vaccine trials where somebody died and it was like the headline on everything. And then it was actually turned out that they were in the placebo group. Yeah. And then there was one, in, was, I think it was in Brazil where somebody died mm. and that like they were trying to stop it and the, and the, and the person committed suicide. Oof. And it's like, no, that's not what's happening there. Yeah. That's not, you know, they're not committing suicide because the drug's not working. I mean, come on. But, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I mean, I hope that something good comes out of this in that sense with the FDA. I yeah. do want to say before we close um, that, like, we're all going through second lockdown pretty soon, I'm afraid. So. I'm leaving, y'all. I'm not staying here. No, but it's not like not, it's not I'm not new. going to no second. Dude, uh, it's, it's, I'll it, tell you, you what, imprison my people I am for not long going enough. To, Second lockdown okay. in COVID winter, New York City. He's I'm going he's, someplace warm. He's Kamala-ing yeah. his head at this yeah. point. It's bad. Excuse me. I'm talking. I'm talking. <laughs> I'm talking. I didn't script this. I'm talking. I wasn't. I I'm wasn't saying talking. this out of a sense of empathy well, for he wasn't our brothers. <laughs> I know. That's what and I was doing. Sisters I was doing who are living drunk. through this, yeah. and also for us who are living through our own alcoholism. Um, <laughs> Like we gotta like take a deep breath and find a second wind. We'll do yeah, it in yeah. the context of this podcast. It's not a problem. Or we just all break the rules. Don't listen to them, man. Oh, yeah. do what you want to do, baby. Yeah, 
this is a podcast about sedition. Yeah, did you know? This is not a podcast about preparing to follow the rules and getting in line and doing what Cuomo say. Do you know that Cuomo's your daddy? Is Cuomo your daddy, Matt Welch? This sounds like he's your daddy. This is actually something that nobody in this room knew. Did you know that Camille Foster was Wesley Snipes' accountant? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to pay that shit. That's voluntary. It's voluntary. Voluntary. It says it right there. Voluntary. Yeah, that's what it says. So you ain't got to pay. Those dummies, they've been paying. Yeah. I'm not. Voluntary. Yeah, you ain't going to jail, man. They ain't going to jail. It's been a year. Nobody come mess with me. I'm fine. Voluntary. You know, the uh, Diversity Partners International Accounting Division uh, (laughs) has has a lot to uh, offer. Well, if they come for me, you know what it is. Yeah. Obviously racism. Well, it's like, you know, if they weren't going to, you know, Congress wasn't going to do anything about reparations, you're going to do it on your own. Amen. Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Say that. I don't get reparations. You forget. I'm not eligible under NHJ's framework why because you're because your family's first generation american yeah. oh yeah i was just about to say something that was really bad and i'm not gonna say anything <laughs> really? it was about uh, i don't even know it wasn't about you oh it's about the other oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll save that for later yeah save that for later we got so many shots Gosh, see, i forgot to ask jason better. about the uh the anti-racist um constitutional amendment because that seems like a problem. Seems like the sort of thing that one would worry about if they're concerned about fascism and authoritarianism. A constitutional amendment that creates an a, an executive body that has the ability to override any law passed in the country that it decides is insufficiently anti-racist. To be clear, though, every constitutional amendment proposal is as as really existing in our lives. I'm just saying that it's that's the ambition. It's the will to power that I'm concerned with. Matt I get Walsh. it. I get it. Yeah. But like, but it's the will to power. Don't it's not talk happen. about Jason. I like though. using that phrase. He's not here. Thank you. No, I'm just I'm saying I'm going to. I know, talk but to him like this, this know, isn't a diss. I'm no, I know, but you're not allowed to talk to him. Yeah, he's not I don't here. want. That's right. Yeah, we don't, don't mention do that. his name. There are a lot of rules that we need to abide by. A lot of like people tweeting. Yeah, who you used to be friends with tweeting about how bad you are. No, we don't want to. We don't want to do that. We also don't want to have abrupt endings. Yes, that's true. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column.